0: What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Recals Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined again, uh, once again, by an extremely cool guest who uh, the audience had an extremely great uh, reception to, uh, my good friend Dave Hall. Uh, He came in here previously as sort of an introductory episode to talk about his time in the SEAL teams, and uh, he's back today to tell us some more of his crazy, awesome, unbelievable stories that uh i think uh we all really enjoy hearing about and we're extremely lucky to to hear from dave today so dave how you doing
1: doing good uh we're gonna, we're gonna pull a few layers back today on uh on the stuff we went over but uh, i want to say I, I like i really like the podcast you did with uh, jr Seeger.
2: Mm.
1: <laughs> thank was, you that was very interesting what a down-to-earth guy uh super humble guy and very interesting his uh, his frank discussion about how he got involved in things
0: that he did yeah it's really cool just to kind of hear about like his background as well too and what sort of led him into the CIA I think that that's you know coming from like an archaeology background I mean it's 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 kind of like a modern Indiana Jones a little bit you know and it was really really cool to kind of chat with him about all that and hear from him too and and likewise with your episode I mean it was outstanding uh chatting about your background and what kind of led you into the seals and anybody who wants to hear more about that uh definitely go and listen to my previous episode with Dave but Dave, we're here today to hear more of your incredible high-speed stories, and I'm extremely excited to get into that. Before we do, though, what do you have on the wrist today?
1: Uh, well, you know, I threw something on that um, is going to sort of relate to about the time periods that we'll, we'll talk about today. So the, the modern incarnation of a turtle, um, but back, well, not, we're just going to start in 88 and go through the early 90s at least, and, and this was uh, the original turtle. I had two of them that I kind of switched out and wore quite a bit. And actually I've got the uh, the springy band all of a sudden that's getting uh, all the popularity again.
0: That's really, really cool. That's nice. I, I just not planned or anything, but I wore my, the modern reissue of the, oh. uh, the Willard today. So that one's nice. uh, I picked this up last or two weeks ago or last week. And it's, it's awesome. I got to say like these modern reissues, Seiko's been knocking out of the park. And for you who use the turtle, you know the original iteration of the turtle. Mm-hmm. and then now you have the the modern version as well too. How do you feel uh, Seiko has done sort of capturing the quality and I guess the spirit of the original?
1: I can't you know as far as the size and the case shape and and uh, it's much finish and everything it looks identical. obviously a little bit of different um, um you know letters and in and uh, the text and stuff is a little formatted, a little bit different on the face. but, <clears throat> the the numbers um indicators and everything are just like i remember and and the best part is that it actually holds better time so i remember as i got older you know as the watches got older and i got older too uh losing several minutes a day it would starting to get annoying um uh, those so it's ultimately it's why i kind of stopped wearing them uh, ah. these are these hold great time so it's kind of like having uh so I'm in that whether it's guns or watches right now, I'm kind of trying to relive my youth while I can. So I, I kind of like having something that looks exactly like it and and functions even better.
0: Well, it's a great time to be uh, you know, involved in either one of those hobbies. It seems like nostalgia is the flavor of the of the week. And it's a great time just to go back and kind of enjoy, you know, these popular designs uh, with modern build quality and some of the, uh, you know, improvements that have happened over, over the last several decades, which I think is really, really cool. But you'd mentioned 1988. Let's bring mm-hmm. us back. I, you know, I kind of wish I had like a, a soundboard here so I could have some cool like synthesizer music or something <laughs> like that. As you Oh know, yeah. 19, 1988 pans across the screen, but let's t- let you take it away here. Yeah. That was
1: actually, well, well started actually 86 and any of the 80 stuff, you, there's no shortage of music you could insert. So, um, 86, I joined the Navy, and I think I told you before that in uh, between the junior and senior year of my my, uh, high school years, I went to Army boot camp in 1985, and then I came back, and in that winter, I was influenced by a lot of the different terrorist events, and my um, pre-association with some SEALs that I'd met at Little Creek through the Sea Cadet Program to Mm -hmm. then go ahead and try to cross into the Navy, and and the uh, Army Reserve was very gracious and let let me do that. So I graduated high school in July of 86, um, went to our, our Navy boot camp. <clears throat> and back in those days, uh, the Navy had a policy that they didn't want you to go to BUDS without a a rating or a job in the Navy. Because so many people don't make it through that they, they felt like, yeah, if it's not really fair to bring you into the Navy, you go and you fail BUDS. And then you basically are a guy chipping paint with no, you know. Uh, that can be transferable to something else um, in the Navy. So they, they would force you to pick an A school. Uh, I wanted to do it differently, though. I came in and I was just like, I want to be a post. So that was the shortest course to get through. It was like a month or less. And uh, I was like, yeah, I'll tie knots and whatever. And then I'll go to go to Bud's. Well, I, I did really well in, in boot camp and I ended up being the honor guy and in, in the, what they call the recruit chief petty officer in charge of the uh, ceremonial Uh, company we had a it was called triple threat so they had a drill team which i was the captain of and they had a uh, thing that did all the uh, honors flags and they had had a choir too yeah they did had a men's choir so that's kind of how i went through boot camp and then by being that guy that afforded me an opportunity if i wanted to to pick an a school i wanted to um i wanted to i wanted to go to a school because i wanted to get in a little bit more shape I was in pretty good shape at boot camp. You know, you're pretty on a pretty tight schedule. And it's a couple months long. And I thought, eh, I'll have more flexibility to to really, really get ready for Buds and stick around. Um, I was from that area where we're uh, training. So I was like, I can stick around here for a little bit longer. I had a girlfriend. I, things were developing there. So I was like, we'll see what goes on with that. And so I uh, opted for Gunner's Main K-School. And I sent you a interesting picture. I hadn't looked at it in a long time. It's mm-hmm. a group photo of uh, graduating from Gunner's Mate A School. So how Gunner's Mate A School was, it broke down in three phases. There was phase one, Gunner's Mate A School, and then you went through this self-paced course called E. It was a basic uh, electricity and electronics. And um, it was really interesting how the Navy was doing that then. So it, it, you had these modules, and you basically you could go to school on your own as long as you wanted to. You could do double sessions. Um, so it was a little bit like college, you know, where you can self-case yourself through it. I was in a hurry. So I jammed through all the modules that I had to go through. And then as soon as that happens, then they go, OK, when we have enough people that have done that, then we then we'll put you in a phase two, kind of me, uh, a school class. And then when you graduate that, you graduate your a school. And then then I got my orders to Bud's and went to buds. So the interesting thing about the picture is <clears throat> Every single person in that picture, except for myself and two guys who had come from the fleet who they didn't have a rate, they were these guys that got stuck without rates and so they it's called striking, so they asked to uh become gunner's mate, so they let them kind of work and do on the job training on chip and they did well enough that they were like, okay, now we're going to send you to the schoolhouse and those guys got to go on to more technical um parts of Gunner's Mate, because Gunner's Mate back then was Gunner's made guns, like the big guns on a ship, Gunner's Mate uh, missiles, the missile systems, and Gunner's made torpedoes, and so these guys were going to stick around and go to a C school, Gunner's Mate uh, missiles. Anyways, there was like two of those guys, and then there was myself with the buds. Every other guy in that picture was assigned to go to the USS Iowa, so right out of boot camp, uh, A school and then straight to the USS Iowa World War II battleship. I was uh, stationed here in Norfolk, Virginia. And so I went off to, to Buds. They went to their ship when they graduated and uh, I wasn't really keeping in touch with anybody, but there was uh, one or two guys that I had gone through all of with. I'd gone through boot camp and then we were in A school together and then they they went to Norfolk. So I graduate Buds and I get orders to the East Coast, to Little Creek, which is not very far from Norfolk. And of course my family wants to come down and visit. And they're all like, hey, can we go on a ship? Can we see a ship? I'm like, "Uh, SEAL team guys can't just go get on ships whenever they want to. But I was like, hey, but I know guys. So I reached out to these guys that I knew from A school and boot camp who were on the Iowa. and And I asked them, I say, I got some family coming down. They want to take a tour of a ship. And they were like, absolutely. So they would take every time my family would come into town. They would take them and just take them through the whole the best tour anybody ever got, and they really, really loved the Iowa. They loved that ship. Um, we were in and out of the gun turrets, uh, all of them. We were below decks, went everywhere. And it was really cool because you'd see the guys out there having to scrub down the wooden decks and all this, which to me looked didn't look like much fun. But they loved that ship. They loved their training command, and uh, they were really proud of it. So. So I had an in. I was like, you know, when friends or family came into town and they wanted to see something cool, I'd go, hey, we'll go tour, tour the Iowa. So I must have been on that thing a half dozen times um, prior to me going to sniper school. <clears throat> so I do my um, still tactical training, which I told you a little bit about uh, last mm-hmm. time. And I, I platoon up and uh, get awarded my Trident. And I was, uh, from the beginning, I was really, really interested in shooting weapons. Um, I just you know, for especially for my time in the teams, I, I think I had a unusually high proficiency and people recognized that. So they were like, Hey, we're gonna send you to sniper school, which was a real honor because as far as I know, I was the first person from that team to go that hadn't done a deployment yet. So I really didn't want to screw up and make them regret regret doing that, you know. So we uh it started in late February of nineteen eighty nine. I went up to uh, camp atterbury, Indiana, and it was super cold. It was still snow and stuff, and we're doing stalks on part part snow and then you have to go into the, the low areas to hide and that's where all the slushy water is it was it was cold and um the shooting was great, learned a lot you know about stalking and all of that kind of stuff and and on um the week before I graduated, which was in mid april um we were finishing up our last week of sniper school, and now my platoon was everybody else in the platoon was down in the Caribbean at the, in Puerto Rico covering a big Navy exercise. And so I remember we were out on the range and we came back and somebody said, Hey man, there's been a big accident down in uh, Puerto Rico. And I was like, Oh, is, did it involve my platoon? And and they're like, no, not directly. Um, our platoon was uh, providing, um, uh, direction for naval gunfire from the Iowa so they were like on the range and calling in fire and stuff on the training range and um, April 19th 1989 that the accident on the Iowa happened where <clears> Tour <throat> two, two exploded and killed 47 sailors and uh, a good portion of them are guys like most of the guys in that picture died in that explosion so there's only a couple that didn't, and um, I remember, so it was April 19th, and I had to look it up in the calendar on the computer the other day to get the days right. So if I remember correctly, the 19th was in the middle of the week, around Wednesday or Thursday time period, and then we finished up our course, I think, on Friday and drove home, either Friday or Saturday, because I remember uh, being in, in my apartment in Virginia Beach. And I heard that the uh, Iowa was coming back into port on, I think it was on the Sunday, it was over the weekend. And uh, I didn't know who was dead and who was alive from my <laughs> A school class because I hadn't released, I don't think they had released all the full names yet. They were still notifying family. And um, the names were starting to come out, but we weren't sure. So I drove down, I literally drove to Norfolk and drove to the pier. And I was there when it came in. And I recognized the guy that I was the closest with through boot camp and uh, A-School was alive, had survived. He was one of the guys that helped save the ship. And he came bouncing down the, you know, the gangway. And I saw me. He was like, get me away from this ship. And um, that was really, you know, it's like the first people I knew in the in the military that, that died, right, Or these guys from A-School. And uh, so I th- I thought, well, he's got some head stuff going on, that which you know, makes sense. I said, Come on, you want to go hang out at our apartment? You can uh, you can stay there and I'll get you some beer, talk about it, whatever you want to do. So we did, but as we we're clearing the pier, he was he said something like, Hey, he goes, you don't understand. He goes, I want to get away from this ship because there's still shells that are stuck on the hoists that haven't been unloaded and they've been exposed to all this fire and stuff. And the hoists are barely hanging on. They're not, you know, they're not connected properly. And he goes, I don't want to be anywhere near the ship if one of those goes off. I was like, wow. And they, and they had brought that ship in with all these family members and everybody on the pier. Thanks. So we went back to the apartment and uh yeah, I listened to his whole story about from the moment the explosion happened and everything they had to deal with to save that ship. Crazy. So that April 19th day was is gonna just set that aside because there's been so many horrible things that have happened on April 19th. And um, it all it all kind of correlates back with sniper school. So the first one was, I'm finishing sniper school on April 19th, 1989, and tour two exploded. And that directly affected me because I knew a bunch of those guys. So where do we go now? We'll uh, fast forward a little bit. Um, in 1992, I was uh, I was getting ready to leave the team I was at and transferred to another team. Um, had been a sniper, had been back, and taught sniper school as an instructor. And um, it, during that time period, we were starting to do a lot more emphasizing uh, shooting from helicopters, using uh, helicopters as a platform to support like our ship takedowns and stuff. And so... And I remember helicopters were becoming more available for us to shoot from. But what we were lacking was um, good long distance ranges. So we had some connections to uh, some guys at, at the FBI hostage rescue team. We had some connections to um, to talk with these guys. And not we weren't really training with them because they're a federal law enforcement agency or Department of Defense but they could get ranges turned on. so we wanted to see if we could borrow ranges they had access to, and then maybe we could help them out with helicopters or something like that. Um, And so leading up to this, the year prior in 89, um, I got really sick on a training mission that we were on. I got pneumonia or something. We came back and it was summertime and it's, it's miserable having pneumonia, but it seems like it's especially... Miserable when you have it in the summertime, and I was real, real sick. i had coughing real hard, and um, but when you're a young guy, and all of us in my platoon were pretty young, so we were very competitive. There wasn't like this <laughs> a, a, a whole bunch of older guys that are like, "Hey, hold on a second, let's let's stop and get this guy well." Everybody's like, "What? You're not going to go in the dive? What? You're not going to go on the jump?" And of course, you you know, there's no way you would you would sit out. So I ended up on a night dive, the Dregger which is a rebreather, and I was coughing so violently into it that the the external breathing bag that holds your breathing medium in the loop completely full. And so now I'm trying to keep the air bubbles from or oxygen bubbles from coming out around, around my lips and giving us away. And appa- apparently, what happened is I coughed so hard I forced uh, oxygen into my into my bloodstream through the, through the arteries through my lungs. And how that, what that felt like, I didn't feel anything in my lungs, but all of a sudden I started feeling vertigo. Like I had the attack board that night and I could see the glowing compass just turning and I could see the depth gauge going up and down and and I could not feel myself trimming out. So I had no sense of balance or equilibrium. And it was really weird to see the dials moving like they were doing it on their own. and I couldn't tell that it was me. Um, and eventually I got we got kind of deep and i realized i couldn't control my depth and i started to not really know where up was i would have had to let a bubble out to know where up was and i had a great swim buddy he knew something was wrong because we dove a lot together he knew immediately something's really really wrong so he did an emergency ascent with me and got me to the surface and um and i was messed up for for a long time after that um didn't didn't feel (laughs) very good and had to go get treated uh, at a bunch of different hospitals, and uh, ultimately, it was my fact that I was really young, that I was able to recover from it. Um, it took, took a while, and during that same time period, what had happened is the Navy wanted to make sure, and this is rightfully so, they want to make sure that they're going to get at least three years out of you once you you know become a seal. So you sign a document saying that you agree to uh, obligate yourself to serve for thirty-six months after you graduate. But look, I had done. It totally intended to do that but in my case my enlistment uh, overlapped so i didn't have three years of enlistment left i had like two or a year and a half or something because i had came in on a short enlistment enlistment and i was absolutely uh you know excited to re-enlist i just started getting healthy again i was like yes i'm gonna re-enlist and i go down um do my paperwork and they go Hey, we we can only give you instead of four, you re-enlist for four years, and they give you four years of what's called SRB. It's basically a bonus for, for re-enlisting. Which when you're young, married now, you're like, Yeah, you'll take all the bonus to give you. And um they go, uh, oh, by the way, uh, yes, you're gonna re-enlist for four years, but we're only gonna give you three years worth of the bonus. And I'm like, Well, how does that work? And it was it was a technicality based on. The fact that we signed a document saying that we would obligate for 36 months somehow made it, made it possible for the Navy to basically rip off a year of of a bonus, which was kind of a pisser, you know, when you're a young, young petty officer and you're like, man, I could use that money. So I had a fantastic commanding officer at the time and he took me aside and he said, hey, I, I hear what's going on. Um, would you like to explore other opportunities? We'd, lo- we'd like you to reenlist enlist you're welcome to re-enlist. We endorse you for re-enlisting. But on the other hand, it's not us. We can't control it. It's the Navy. And if the Navy is going to kind of screw you, I can give you some um, other places to look and see maybe if that was some, something else you want to do. But I really appreciate it. So he set up uh, like a week for my my wife at the time and I to go up to Washington, D.C. And he knew all these people from his, you know, he was a very seasoned Seal officer and had uh, had worked with the Marshals and the DEA and all these people before. So, so here I am this uh, E four and I'm up in Washington and <clears throat> I go in and I one of my first uh, things was to meet with the DEA and talk to them about uh, their special programs, which was funny because we were only uh, we were only a few weeks away from invading Panama, and I think those guys assumed that I must know know all about the impending you know, raid of in Pan- Panama and what they were going to do with uh, Noriega and all that. which I, I was happily ignorant of, I, I knew something was in the wind, but I definitely wasn't read in. So that, that was a weird meeting. Cause I remember them being like, okay, yeah, well maybe we'll see you down there in Panama. And I was thinking, how the hell does that work? But then the next one that was interesting is I met uh, with the Marshall service. And that was really interesting. Cause I didn't know much about the Marshalls. I didn't know, I knew they were a federal law enforcement agency. I didn't really understand what their authorities were, or what their you know job title was and stuff. And they had a special organization within it called SOG which exists. And um, it was still pretty, it was pretty new then in 89. And so I met with the two head guys from SOG. So there was a marshal, uh, Bill uh, Deegan, and sat with him. And uh, we had a really good meeting. And he was like, hey, we'd, we'd be happy to put you, you know, you up if you decide to leave the navy, we'll get you in a pipeline and you know, heading towards fog. That seemed like the faster route than some of the other things like FBI and so on and so forth. So so I had a lot to consider and ultimately I went back to uh base and then uh you know, a few weeks later, some of my friends uh deploy overnight and i would just seen them in the compound. And where are they there in Panama? And uh, a couple of them got killed. So one of them that was a good friend of mine from Silking 4, uh, Chris Tillman, got killed. And then my my, uh, apartment neighbor, I didn't know him very well because he was actually newer than I was, but I knew who he was. We'd see each other all the time when we were both in town. And it was a guy named Isaac Rodriguez um, from Texas. And he, he was so new that he hadn't earned his trident yet. And since they were going to combat, they actually said hey this isn't right let's give this guy his trident so they had a a, like a ad hoc ceremony to pin his trident on him on their way down to go do this mission and then he ended up getting killed on that mission so hold the thought on the marshes so that was in uh, 89 December of 89 and it influenced me Uh, after losing uh two people that I knew uh in a combat mission I was like oh shoot I want to stay around here and make a contribution. I, I re-enlisted I decided I was going to stay for a career. and so I was one of the first guys uh, uh, in a platoon to deploy when Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait in August of uh, 1990. and ultimately that that turned out to be kind of disappointing. uh they they rushed us over there and then um then it was like we just ha- kind of held the stalemate, while they were building up all the, you know, getting all of our tanks and stuff over there on ships. And so we thought we were going to be rushing right in and going going to combat, you know, the year after, not even a full year after the Panama invasion. So we we're all pretty excited about that. But ultimately, we stayed there for three months and then they realized, well, we have too many SEAL platoons flooding into the area and we got to pull some back or we're going to be out of synchronicity for the next six month rotations and stuff. So unfortunately for us, we drew a short card. Our platoon came back and a platoon from the West coast came back and then they re us winter warfare platoon, which was pretty damn funny. So we come back from 120 degree heat and immediately, you know, find yourself a week later in Utah skiing powder. And you're like, what the, you know, it's the total mind screw. So did a deployment, the cold war one I told you about in the last one in, uh, in 91 mm-hmm. and came back. And that's when I decided, Hey, I think I want to go over to this other team. But we were working out the thing with the helicopters and, and we were reaching out to FBI HRT and saying, hey, let's uh, let's let's uh, see if these guys have some ranges. And so one of our leaders set up another meeting up there and said, yeah, you guys drive on up there it's on a Friday. So drive on up there to uh, Quantico. They're expecting you. They've got two points of contact that are, are going to meet with you and you guys can talk it over and come back and tell us what you think. I remember we it was really early in the morning this Friday because Quantico is like a three-hour drive from from Virginia Beach. So we had to grab a rental car, and I think we I think me and my buddy met up at about four thirty in the morning, and we zoom up uh, up ninety five, get to Quantico, and as you do, you want to get there a little bit early to uh, make a good impression. And We don't want them waiting on us, so we get to the FBI hostage rescue team's headquarters, and um, they had these two. Uh, attractive receptionists there. I'm sure, I'm sure that was part of their training process. They were easy on the eyes and they were very pleasant. And um, so they go, Hey, your guys, we're expecting you, but the the guys that are supposed to meet you, they're not going to be here till like nine o'clock and like eight 30 or something. So we said, okay, we'll just chill. And um, you know, on any Navy base, you can find a pot of coffee somewhere. And me and this buddy of mine were pretty big coffee drinkers. So we're like, Hey, do you guys have a coffee mess someplace so we can throw a couple of cups back while we're waiting for these guys? And they went, Oh, we don't, um, we don't actually keep one going, but we have. One. And I was like, okay, no, you know, no worries. You don't need to get, uh, go out of your way for it. I said, no, no, we, actually it's not an imposition. We'll do it. So we said, okay, as long as you don't mind. And, and so they start setting up this coffee pot. So we're pulling our heels waiting for them to, to brew this coffee for us. And then this guy, Who's not the guy we're supposed to meet, but he's one of the HRT guys. He comes sliding down the hallway and sees us, and um, doesn't introduce himself. But it's obvious he he's an HRT guy. And he comes up to us, and he starts um, starts kind of taking the piss out of us. But at first, I thought he was just playing with us, you know, messing with us. He knew we were seals; it was obvious. And he started, be- but then I started to realize because we're laughing and he's not, and I'm like, "Are you being?" are you just being rude or what, what's wrong with you? And it, and it's very obvious he was going out of his way to project himself as an asshole to us. So much so that I was like, well, god dang. I take my buddy aside and I said, hey, if this is how these guys are, let's not wait for the other two. Let's just get out of here. we got other places we can be. Let's go get in a rental car and go on to the next place. And he was a little, like, yeah, I see where you're coming from, but maybe we should wait for the other two guys and then this dude keeps at it and i'm like okay really you really want to stick around and see what it's like when the other two jokers show up and he's like so by then i'd kind of persuaded him that's that we were going to go well these two receptionists had overheard us and i guess they punched the pager numbers in like emergency for these two dudes we're supposed to meet so these guys Ashley intercepted us as we were leaving. So we were telling the receptionists, hey, when those other dudes get here, just tell them, tell them we're sorry to put them out of their their way, but we're taking off. And we literally ran right in. And they and they must have gotten some sort of brief from the two, two women. And uh so they, they grabbed us and they go, Hey, come on, let's go, let's go over to breakfast. We want to talk with you. And there's a really nice catered breakfast over here at the FBI Academy. Let's sit down and eat. And I'm still thinking, nah, let's go, let's go home. Let's get out of here, go to the next place. And they persuade us now, come on, just come, come hang out with us. So we go and we have breakfast with them and, and they turn out to be two of the most professional and nicest dudes. And we're good friends uh, for years. I haven't seen them in forever, but super, super good dudes and really competent guys. And um, so we have this breakfast, we get some coffee. So our nerves are, are in a better place. And um, one of them decides that we need to talk about that elephant in the room. So they go, hey, so we understand one of our guys showed his ass to you. And I was like, yeah, what, what is up with that guy? And they go, well, you know, they said, you know how every unit has its 10%, meaning 10% that sh- probably shouldn't be there. And I was like, yeah, but man, he goes, well, you, hey, you guys have them too. I was like, all right, well, that's fair. Yeah, we do, but I was like, "What is this guy's doing?" And I said, "And I have to uh, explain the circumstance because I don't know if you watch other people's podcasts, but I just saw one within the last week. Uh, Andy Stumpf, who's a who's a retired SEAL, I know who he is. I don't know him personally, and I generally I, I like his podcast. So I was, my wife and I were watching it the other day, and he had an FBI HRT veteran named Chris Whitcomb on, and Whitcomb was explaining." The day that I'm talking about, that Friday, he was explaining that day from his point of view. And it's funny how you can remember it completely differently. It depends on your frame of reference, right? So I'll I'll offer a frame of reference that I don't think he or any of those guys, the HRT guys, could see of themselves. But to us, me and my partner, it was very obvious. So what had happened from 90 to 91? The Gulf War, right? First Gulf War. So we had Desert Shield, which I was a part of. And then when the combat operations launched, Desert Storm. And then here in the United States, and I don't know if you have if you're old enough to remember this, but when when everybody came back, Desert Storm was very short, well, just a few months, and then poof, it's done. When everybody came back from the Middle East, the Vietnam veterans in this country were Adamant that they, you know, the military people that came back from Desert Storm were not going to be treated like they were treated. And so, all across the country, there were all these parades. Every major city had these military parades, you know, oh, welcome back, Desert Storm heroes and stuff. And frankly, I think the Vietnam veterans needed it as much for themselves to ensure that, you know, the next generation wasn't treated crappy. But it was just a phenomenon that military people were all of a sudden this big
2: deal.
1: Hmm. Well, who, does, who did HRT work with? The tier, tier one military guys. So they were like a triad because the HRT was, was, uh, was the domestic law enforcement slash counterterrorist um, uh, organization. And they worked very closely with Army's tier one organization and Navy's tier one organization. Well, the, those guys and all the rest of us got to go do a little something. It wasn't huge. But you got that dip your toe in it and come back and go, all right, we did something. We we went out and we did these operations and now now we know our, our stuff works, right? Our it's work or what have you. But they didn't get that. And they also didn't get the accolades because no reason to take them to overseas, you know, data country. And I and honestly, you could smell it, you could feel it when you went into the compound that they felt like they'd been left behind, mm-hmm. that they still hadn't, they hadn't had their moment yet of recognition and proving themselves. It was palpable. And this one dude, his energy was that on steroids. Like he would just wanted to come up and throw it in our face, you know, that he disapproved of us for some, for whatever reason. And and so I remember at breakfast, and this is the one that's going to get you. I remember saying to these two guys, they're like, hey, he's just our 10%. He's just a guy that, you know, he's a nice guy, but maybe he shouldn't, you know, be an turkey guy. And I said, what is his background, though, man? I said, he doesn't seem like a special operations guy. And you have a lot of former special operations guys. And I said, well, he was in the Army. I said, okay, what else? Well, he went to West Point, and then he was in the Army as an officer. It's like, well, he wasn't a range, ranger or special operations guy because he doesn't have the confidence. There's something wrong with him. He said, nah, I think he was like a field artillery guy or something like that. I was like, well. I said, you know what? I can put my finger right on it. I know what it is. And they said, what is it? I said, this guy, this guy is dying to prove that he can kill somebody. He's dying for that moment to prove that he can He can pull the trigger on someone. And my, my buddy agreed with me, but he wasn't like, you know, he was like a, kind of offensive to say to these guys. We just met him. And they were shocked. They're like, oh, you know no man i don't know i think i go no i don't know that's exactly what it is i said there's something wrong with this guy i said you, you should probably watch it I Said something's up with him so we go back over to their compound now now we're going to do our our liaison and the first thing they did is they had that guy apparently they had called over and and prearranged us so they had that guy meet us as we we're passing through the hallways and he comes up and offers one of these cheap apologies you know the where you kind of want to look around behind him and see if somebody's standing there with a gun in his back. Yeah. And uh, and he's like, hey man, sorry about any misunderstanding this morning or whatever. And I'm thinking, I misunderstand anything. You're you're just an asshole. Mm-hmm. And um, but we let it drop, right? Because they're making their effort. And he hands us his business card. Hey man, you know, here, here's my card, you know, no hard feelings and stuff like that. And I look at the the card and it says Lan Horyyuchi. So, all
0: I right, know, whatever. I think, I think I know where this is going. Okay, interesting.
1: So I'm I'm like, okay, well, now I know his name because he didn't offer it before, right? So we're walking through the compound. It's about mid, mid-morning, midday, getting close to lunchtime, maybe, around lunchtime. We're in the cage areas and they're showing how they organize their cages, which is just like we organize ours. And uh, somebody comes rushing in and then we see guys grabbing gear. And putting it on uh, rollaways to take, take out, put on a pallet. And, and uh, so we're watching this scene unfold. And uh, I say to the two guys that are our chaperones there, I'm like, hey, is this, a, do you mind me asking this? Is this a drill or, because we did a lot of stupid drills on our side of the house back then. So that wouldn't wouldn't be uncommon. So is this a drill or is this something real going on? He goes, oh no, man. He goes, this is, uh, this is for real. I said, well, can you tell me what's going on? Which we're interested. He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, there's uh, some marshals have been shot up at this place in Idaho called Ruby Ridge. And I was like, Oh, you're kidding me? He goes, No, yeah, they killed the the lead SOG guy, Bill Deegan. And I'm like, Bill Deegan, I know Bill Deegan. I'm like, yeah, he's dead, man. He's down, and we gotta go out there and, and we gotta go deal with this. Holy crap, you know. So we ended up staying the rest of the day but the one group went to andrews and flew out to ruby ridge while we hung out with these other guys the rest of the day and uh, and then me and my buddy get in the car and so it was kind of a surreal day right so we're driving to our next destination and i'm like and hey, this was a weird day starting this morning with that guy lon what the hell was all that about and it said and then these guys get called out and they're going out and it's because a guy that I know got killed and details were very sketchy. You know, you're turning on the TV and you're, and you're being fed with the news. And, uh, 24 hours later, come to find out Lon did kill, but he killed Vicki Weaver. And the interesting thing about that is that, <clears throat> you know, there were, there were at least three witnesses to me making that statement about Lon over breakfast. Um, there were more witnesses that witnessed his behavior towards me and my buddy when we, when we arrived. And, uh, I think it was pretty well known how he acted. I don't know if they spread the word about my comment about what I thought his motivation was, but I think it's interesting that somebody and it happened to be me made an observation about his state of mind 24 hours before he did take somebody's life. And that has never seen the light of day that was never brought up in a federal court. I just don't feel like somebody might've said, well, it doesn't really matter. It's, you know, whatever. People act like idiots sometimes, but isn't it curious that that never, like wouldn't the Weaver family at least have been wanted to know that somebody felt that way?
0: Well, it's interesting you bring that point up and I kind of wanted to get your opinion a little bit on that as well too, like more as a private citizen, I guess. And obviously things are sort of different in the, american side of things than they are in the canadian side of things Mm -hmm. we look at it you know especially in law enforcement from a certain perspective um you know about kind of the the tactics that we use and obviously some of the not so great elements of what happened at ruby ridge but what was your take on i guess what happened at ruby ridge you know as much of a perspective as you're willing to share obviously it's a controversial time and obviously With this Um, this individual you're talking about, then that carries on to another kind of major federal law enforcement uh, incident that happened as well, too. So what is some of your perspective on that? Well,
1: I think it's interesting. Uh, So when you talk to anybody that was there, that was actively involved, um, or you see their interviews, you know, at this age that we're at right now, and, and for many years prior to this, Everybody seems to have the common theme of, well, it shouldn't have happened, you know. Uh, And I don't want to hang the weight of all of that tragedy on that one man. Mm. But he's certainly a component. And I'm not sure that the correct amount of value of his role in that has ever been um, really assessed, you know, because that's a big thing for some stranger that just met you. To go, well, here's my assessment of you. You know, I didn't say it to his face. I said it to his buddies. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't, I would not hang the weight of everything on him. But I think what you see, and, and you'll see this again in another example, mm-hmm. is there seemed to be a, a, a incremental escalation in force driven by a fear that when all the dust was settled, when you look at why did the fear exist? the fear was more about uh, incorrect assumptions Mm -hmm. than it was on accurate information. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, and some of it, I think, was uh, agenda driven. Um, Say, for example, like SOG, SOG was new and I think they were trying to get involved in whatever they could so they wouldn't go away. Right. And um, so I think that what ended up happening there is, you know, most people will say that this was like an entrapment case that ATFs put it against this uh randy weaver for the purpose of trying to get him to turn as a witness on his parishioners and his church Mm -hmm. and you know we could have this whole sidebar discussion when we get to waco on our do you think those people were odd you know very subjective but there's some people might think that randy weaver's uh religious views were not in line with theirs. okay but he's free to have them I, Mm -hmm. i agree with that and um I think it's a, I think it's a foolish errand to try to, to um, do a case on somebody where you leverage them. You try to get them to do something, that you can then say, "Hey, I think that's that's wrong. That's a crime." So we won't punish you for the crime that we coerced you to do, if you tell us details about the people that go to church. Mm-hmm. You know, and you could use other, you know, or whether what it what could be a gardening club for all. I you know, I'm just saying that i think i'm like man that's a bad that's a slippery slippery slope you
0: know well it's not even it's not even that like you know even just from I, again like obviously I, I can only speak from a canadian side of things and obviously mm-hmm. the laws here are different they're based on the british commonwealth they're not you know things are different over there uh in america but like when you talk about things like when they were going onto the property there at ruby ridge and you have guys showing up uh, uh, apparently if from at least the things i've seen the guys showing up in in ghillie suits not identifying themselves as local, local law enforcement or federal law enforcement. They shoot his dog, they shoot his 14-year-old kid or at his 14-year-old kid, yep. right? Like the whole thing sort of seemed like who, who decided this was the way to go about doing this? Then you go into like all the stuff yep. with like the messed up court dates and all the paperwork that wasn't yep. done properly. So then like, was it even a lawful arrest? Like there was just so right. much stuff that didn't. And again, always right.
1: an escalation. Right, right.
0: So and that, it seemed like, like like you were saying it seemed like there was an agenda to sort of prove hey we can do these tactics and do this cool high speed stuff and then yeah. they get in a gunfight with a 14 year old and turn it into one of the prolific stand or standoffs in in american history right yeah,
1: yeah. And, and yeah and you know to when i listened to chris whitcomb last week on stump's podcast discussing uh his firsthand account And he discussed that they're walking through the woods, going uphill to get in some sniper positions once they got there, and that they were met by some other FBI guys who were on the scene, uh, ostensibly in charge, right, and Mm -hmm. probably part of the negotiating team, or whatever, that gave them a uh, conflicting set of rules of engagement to anything they'd ever done before, which was actually... It was it was seems more like kill than kill capture or apprehend, right? It was mm-hmm. it wasn't like hey, you're authorized to shoot if you are in uh, bodily danger, you know, or one of your someone else is. It was very very liberal, and he into his mind the way he expressed it, he never never had anything like that handed down to him before, right? But mm-hmm. so this isn't this isn't the the L.A. Olympics, and you're trying to get somebody that's about to actuate a dirty bomb. This is a, a dude who missed a bench warrant. Mm-hmm. And yeah, okay, there was a, there was gunfire. There was a dust up. But do we really know what happened? That thing hadn't even been investigated. Everybody was taking the surviving marshal's word for it. Um, although, like you like you said, if you have somebody that lives on a mountain and they live off the land primarily because they're living very meagerly, do you think there isn't a blade of grass that gets broken that they don't notice when they mm-hmm. go out Looking for gear or what have you?
0: Well, and, so, and with the bad with the background as well, too, like, you know, he was, a, I think it was, a, it was an Army Green Beret as well, too. Like, he especially knows a lot about, you know, survival and maintaining his perimeter and things like that as well, too. He's not just a normal mountain man I, either, right? I think that was actually conflated and not by him. I think that was conflated by the government
1: as well. So I had to know a little bit about this because I told you I was in the 12th 12, uh, 12 Special Forces group. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't gone to SF. Q course and graduated but I was in the unit and I think that's what he was I think he was a guy that was a drilling reservist or even yeah. on active duty but he was more in a support role than okay. somebody who actually from started on day one and went through all three phases of the Q course and got his special forces uh ab so that's a big difference so mm-hmm. having been be like the guys that uh, whatever did the admin stuff around you know kept our boat engines running and stuff. The SEAL team being put on an equal plane as a, as a SEAL operator. I think that's what they did. And it, I'm glad you brought that up because I just think it was one of these things that just kept, Oh, he's more dangerous than, well, you mm. know, he's a guy who doesn't much like being around regular society. So he took him and his family off the grid and they just wanted to be left the hell alone. Mm-hmm. And then what'd they do? They kept poking at him. They went and agitated the, the situation. And, it, you know, when we would, uh, go do whether it was training missions or real missions. If you know that there's people that live on this rural area, you avoid them at all costs because they know what's around them very, very well. You don't go up there and say, we're going to sit here and stare at these people and they're not going to feel us looking at them. They will. So I think that was one of the big uh, escalations. Mm -hmm. And then it just went from there. And um, so ultimately, you know, they, they kill Vicki Weaver and then that thing lasts longer because they don't realize that they killed her. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, at the end of the day, nobody goes, no, no federal agent was ever held accountable.
0: Well, I think for, that you, you mentioned uh law there, and I think he actually got charged and then all the charges got dropped by a federal prosecutor later on. Like this basically got swept under the rug. And then of course he ends up at, at Waco as well. Yeah. So, so I think, so I don't, I don't think it had
1: been resolved. Uh, by the time Waco happened because Waco wasn't that far after so okay. I think he he was still he may have been cleared to carry his gun and still operate but I don't think the court cases had anywhere near clearing that and the reason I say that is because so we stayed in touch with these two guys that we met and got along with the day that Cole Ruby Ridge thing happened at 19th, and one of the things that um that we helped organize and I was a I was a sniper instructor i was out at atterbury whenever we were teaching our course we did a spring course and we did a fall course so about four months out of the year i I would be up there teaching and um they they didn't have they didn't have it in their calendar to give up to of their operators for two months Mm -hmm. plus they'd already been through marine uh sniper school there quantico so they were like hey can we come take can we like do your course in bites?" they were really interested in some of our observation techniques they were interested in some of our stalking how we taught our stalking and the standards that we had very similar to the marine corps but a little different they're interested in some of our our shooting stuff was really different than the marine corps uh the marine corps um dialed in for everything and we we shot whole and uh, and held wind but so that's, that's a different style, and that was all attributed ironically to Carlos halftime um so, and actually, going back to that uh, I told you about the day that I went and picked up my friend from the u s s Iowa, it was the next morning that I graduated from sniper school, and there's that black and white picture I sent you of shaking uh Carlos Hathcock's hand mm-hmm. and you can see I'm wearing a turtle in that picture that was literally the day after I picked up the guy from uh the Iowa mm-hmm. so, so yeah so so to to the Ruby Ridge thing, the other thing that was weird is that, so these guys said, Hey, can we come out and do like two weeks at a time? And we said, yeah, sure. So the first time they came out was, would have been, I don't remember if it was that fall of 92 or, or spring of 93, but they came out, it was probably the fall of 92. They came out and, uh, they did a couple of weeks and then they were like, all right, we'll do the same thing in the spring. And, uh, I remember, you know, asking these guys because I socialized with them too. When we, we were out there for two weeks, we weren't just, you know, it was all business. Like, hello, I'll see you at the range. You know, we we go out and have a couple beers with them, and have dinner, and you know, knew them like friends. And uh, I would ask them, like, so who was the guy that shot Vicky Weaver? Uh, we can't, we can't say. And I think it's convenient that it was almost exactly five years later that I found out and I went, oh, shit. I wonder if that was deliberate mm-hmm. Um, because of that comment that I had made. And, you know, I was young then I was in my early twenties and these guys were probably had maybe a decade on me. A lot of them, you know, uh, some of them are, a lot of the guys are, are uh, lawyers or have law degrees that are in HR, you know, so I always deferred like, well, you, you guys must be doing the right thing, you know, you're the professionals. At this. But now that I'm in my, you know, 50s and I look back and I think about it, I, I wonder, was justice really served really for that family, you know, uh in that time frame. And if it wasn't such a big deal, what I said, then why didn't why didn't somebody say, hey, not for nothing, but the day before this happened, there's a there's a guy who could be seen as a credible guy and it was witnessed by other people, us included made this observation about him. You know, maybe, maybe you guys should run it to ground in the investigation so you can, if there's a fire there, you can put it out or if there's something that should should be pulled, it gets pulled. Mm-hmm. And um, it just never happened. So I think when when a lot of these guys, like, and I don't want to take the piss out of uh, any particular guy, but I think that it's fair to say that they have a, they had a sense of themselves, right? But we picked up something when we were there visiting, like these guys have this, like, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, they're very driven. They feel like they're behind the, their DOD partners. There's this big urge to do something. Hmm. And it, I thought it was palpable. And um, I don't know why that wasn't accounted for. But and the thing is that since it never got addressed, I would say that it's it could happen again, you know yeah but i don't think the lesson's been learned really you know
0: yeah well i mean you know i suppose every generation in in law enforcement or anything like that sort of has that view of like you know the guys the previous generation of guys were the cowboys they got to do whatever they want the rules were different back then and things like that so i mean you know take it with a grain of salt for what it is but it's just like when i look at the perspective of those things as they happen and when they happen, whether it was on your side of the border or, or ours, it was just—it mm-hmm. seemed like that there wasn't that the rules were different. It's that there really just weren't any. Like it seemed like it was sort of like the pioneering days of like you know we're the big we're the big government. We can do whatever we want. Those ground yeah. those 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 operating procedures, the parameters um you know case law and things like that hadn't really been established mm-hmm. to the same degree that they are now right so yeah. that's not to excuse obviously in any sort of way but it was just there's a different attitude i think towards these sort of things back then um and a different public sentiment about these sorts of things as well too right i mean i think like if the if the, yeah. if the public hears hey there's a, a crazy mountain man hold up and he just killed some federal agents you generally have a little bit more public support to just go in there and deal with it, however that happens. Whereas nowadays, I think people you do until to- you don't, though, right? Right. And, and so, yeah, they. I, I, and, and you're touching on
1: when that siege was going on, the way it was played out in the media. I would think that most of the country thought, well, I hope they get this maniac under control, you know, off his mountain. And as things revealed themselves um, in the wake of the death of, of Vicky Weaver and, and injuries sustained by the other family and members and the friend. I think that the, the apparatus saying the federal government poured more gas on what what could be at best called a simmering, you know, mm. um ember of, of dissent against the government, you know, the so-called domestic terrorism stuff or whatever. Are there domestic ter- terrorists? There back Yes. Yeah. There's, pe- there's nutbags everywhere. I've seen, I've seen crazy stuff in the town I grow up, grew up in. Um, but it, but if they, they weren't bombing people or yeah. killing people or they were just being jerks exercising free speech. And any anyways, isn't that what makes our, our country great is that you can, you, you know, you can exercise your right to say something that I think is really horrible. But at least you have the right to say it. And,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that doesn't mean just words. That means I've seen KKK guys in parades in formation, wearing her stupid robes and stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, you know. Um, And we had to tolerate it uh, growing up, it was a thing. But looking back at it from a more mature lens, I go, well, at least you had an idea how many of them there were, you know, and and they were exercising their right to um, express themselves, right, in a way that wasn't violent and so maybe that kept them from doing something that was fine.
0: So yeah. no, so I mean, when
1: you, anyways, so I think that the things like the Ruby Ridge and then later Waco mm-hmm. uh, made
0: a lot of people angry who didn't really have a dog in the fight. Before. Well, and you didn't really see a lot of stuff up until those two big instances get televised either, right? Like to, to the degree yeah. that they recovered, right? So it's sort of like the public got to see sort of how the sausage is made as it were right? And that was a little bit more of a, you know, an eye opener yeah. of like, hey, what the heck or how did you know, they don't have any context training or understanding about the way these things go. And again, I'm, I'm not, mm. I won't say that the things went awesome, or that they were necessarily all done uh, correctly. But it's hard to contextualize a lot of the tactics and things you're seeing reported on as well, too. when you don't have any sort of frame of reference about what's happening. So I yeah. think for the public too, that created a lot of public sentiments, it's like, Oh, my God, why are they doing this horrible thing? And then, If you're actually working in that capacity, you're like, oh, this is just like a normal thing that we do, right? And there's again, like, there's so much interest, so much stuff covering Waco and Ruby Ridge and things like that. People can go and go in and kind of look into that more. You mentioned sort of like, there was a connection also for you to Waco. Was that through this this Ruby Ridge story? Yeah, Yeah,
1: same thing. So, um, so one last thing about Ruby Ridge because I think it's going to apply to the to the Waco thing as well is. I don't think there's any doubt that there were several mechanisms of authority to push the, um, push the pressure up Mm. to, to go to for the government to go to the next level. Right. Um, Whether it meant, uh, you know, basically free fire shooting or, or blaring, you know, doing the uh, insane, you know, blowing the microphone or speakers and trying to make people nuts, um, Mm -hmm. sleep deprivation things. Um, But where was, Where was two things? Where was the authority to go, hey, man, maybe we should let the air out of this balloon. Mm -hmm. Are we actually doing, are we making this, I mean, these are American citizens. You may not like what they do. Like, there's a lot of stuff some people do that I don't personally care for. At the end of the day, they're, you know, in the big sense, they're your neighbors. And um, and maybe we should figure out how to deescalate this. And also there's kids involved. You know, there was a newborn subjected to all of that. And I really think if you see that, what happened next was just that on freaking steroids, right? If it's okay to to blare speakers at a gazillion de- decibels at people to often them up and get them to bend to your will, and there are children that are on the receiving end of that, they did it at Ruby Ridge. Are we shocked that they did it again at Waco?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The last thing I would say is... I was really struck by uh, again going back to this uh, message that was delivered to those guys that Chris Whitcomb described in this escalation. Hey, this is your new uh, rules of engagement, right? Use of force, and and they and they went forward because there there is a time to have a moral courage to go. Well, you're if you're going to do that, you can count me out, mm-hmm. and you take the bolt out of your gun and you leave the gun or the bolt in the woods and you take one or the other back down the mountain and go, you're going to do it. It's not going to be by my hand and it's not going to be with this piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. And um, nobody's had the moral fortitude to go, hold on a second. That's not what I'm here for, you know? So anyways, um, then we see more of that. So what do we get to? We get to April (laughs) again. I'm teaching sniper school to set the scene we uh we would be out in the either on the range all morning or in the field doing a stalk or what have you or some you know some range uh, estimating exercise or the things that you do at sniper school we'd be there from early in the morning until about lunchtime we get, only gave ourselves about an hour to get some lunch down your neck and then we were back out for the rest of the day and <clears throat> this was pre cell phone this was pre everybody's wired in to know exactly you know what the breaking news is but we literally had a break room that had one TV in it, you know, you had to go change the channel yourself. And, uh, and we would stand in the break room just to see, Hey, what's going on in the world. And what was going on that April was the siege at root at uh, Waco. Mm. And so we're getting into you know every day because sniper school is two months long. Right. So we're, we're in there going, man, going, Well, these guys are still in here. And then we'd see the buildup. And then I knew that guys that I knew from HRT were down there because they were communicating and uh, because they were, I wanted to come up and do part of the course. And they were like, Hey, we're going to be delayed. You know, obviously we're down here. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. So one day in the lunchroom, April 19th, standing in the lunchroom and we're eating chicken and staring at the TV. And somebody goes, Oh man, they're ramming the building with, with tracked vehicles. It looks like they're going to force this thing to come to an end. And then somebody goes, what is, is that smoke? Yeah, man, there's, there's smoke in the building. And in the amount of time it took us to have lunch, even faster than that, that whole damn place burned down, burnt down right before our eyes. I was like, Holy geez. And also all of us go back out to the range, all the instructors. And, you know, we're trying to get work done and get, get the the students dialed in and, but, I mean, definitely, everybody's talking about. It. Like, God, I think we just saw a bunch of people incinerated on live TV. And, and what the heck? So that was the talk of the of the day. A long day shooting, and when, when it was done, I I decided I was going to go down the road to a um, little restaurant that was only a couple miles outside the base. Uh, very limited places to eat, so I go there and I'm sitting there eating. And the bartender, after I've been there for about an hour, she uh, she goes, "Hey, you have a you have a call behind the bar." who's calling me here so I pick come take the phone call and it's the base it's our guy on watch at the base and he goes hey you got a phone call from uh your FBI friends and they need your assistance tonight I was like well what's going on and he said two of them and he said their names and it was the guys that I had been working with like yeah what's 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 up he goes they're flying into Indianapolis tonight and they're wondering two things can you go pick them up take them to the local FBI office to them to get one grab one of their vans and then can you set up a barracks room for them in our in our barracks uh, for a few days they're gonna be here for a few days I was like oh yeah okay so I went and drew rooms for them so they had a pad to crash and I drive up the Indy and I pick these guys up. They come off the plane completely smelling like a house on fire. Hadn't even changed clothes. I mean they smelled like smoke through and through. And they were all excited, you know, like, wow, man, I'm thinking, oh, well, I'd be gassed up, too, if I just saw all these, you know, people get killed. So I take them, they get their van, they come down. We hang out, and they talk, they're talking about it that night. And I, I was a little bit like, wasn't sure how to put it in a frame of reference, right? Because part of me was like, are these guys, like, excited? Like, this was their validation moment? Or are they just, is this just nervous energy from seeing this horrific event? Could Couldn't really put my finger on it. But the next day, they wanted to to take about an hour and brief everybody, all of our students, on what they, what they did down there, you know, sniper stuff, what they saw. And so they did. And they were showing, you know, videos and pictures and stuff. And then it then it dawned on me as I was, um, I was in the back of the room listening to them. And I'm like, I think this is evidence that we're being shown.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: that's what they call that. Um, uh, It's probably not the right thing to be doing. Thanks for making everyone in the class a witness now. Well, they yeah they did, <laughs> and uh, and then they came. So after, so I kind of left the room. I was like, ah, eh,
1: I don't think I want to. I don't know what's going to come out next. I don't need to be in here for it. So I went down to go set us up for whatever our next evolution was, and and they came down, and I just remember the looks on their faces. They were all like proud of something, but they were proud, and I just I remember thinking said so I don't know how I broke it to them and I wasn't um I wasn't mad and I wasn't trying to be an asshole to them because I really like these guys. But I remember kind of trying to convey like I don't really understand your mood because you're a hostage rescue team and eighty something of your hostages just perished. Mm-hmm. This is not it's not really a day to be super happy. Mm-hmm. Um I couldn't get my mind around it. I, and it wasn't, I didn't really want to keep pulling that string, you know. And um, and so then I think that goes back to if, if you talk to somebody who who maybe somebody would characterize as a an anti-government nut or somebody that's against the government or domestic terrorist or whatever label they're hanging on people who just don't much like being bullied by the government or just didn't like what happened at Ruby Ridge and at Vico. Um, I think that uh, if you ask them what kind of guys these guys are, they would say, "Oh, they're monsters. They're horrible people." And I would, I think, the scarier thing is that they're not monsters. Mm-hmm. They're pretty nice guys, but they were nice guys that somehow, them collectively, couldn't see that what they were doing was doing more harm than than doing good.
0: Well, it's like the it's like the whole thing with the Siberian prison guards, right? When they mm. with Stalin uh, dropped out of, when Stalin died, like the one thing with the with the prison guards and the people that were in the work camps in Siberia was that they got released, but you weren't allowed to live within a certain mile radius of a major city once you got released from a Siberian prison. So what happened is a lot of these people got released and they moved into the same towns uh, as the prison guards lived in. So the people that they were previously guarding ended mm-hmm. up being your next door neighbors. What ended up happening is when Stalin died, all the prison guards started to see all these atrocities, the things they were doing, and they thought that they were just doing the right things. They were just normal guys with yeah. a job trying to you know you're living in the USSR you're trying to survive you know it's great to have a job or else you'll end up in one of those camps as a prisoner right mm-hmm. they, they all they all killed themselves once they realized that you know they thought they were doing the right thing and they they didn't do it anything with any sort of malice in their heart or intent they were just doing a job yeah. and then they realized the horrible nature of what they were actually a part of right And It's sort of the same thing you're describing where it's like these guys, you know, they're doing their job, they're doing what they're trained to do, they're following the parameters that are in place at the time and you know, Mm -hmm. maybe maybe the historical lens has provided some context it's hard to say people don't want to admit that they did something that they were a part of something like that and what they did was wrong, or at least maybe that the part of what they did maybe 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 the part of what they did specifically in, in their involvement wasn't wrong. It was by the book and whatever. But some of the things oh. that, some of the things that happened were, you know, I mean, and going back from like a technical point of view, like my understanding is when they rammed the compound and they put mm-hmm. in the the smoke, it was actually like a incendiary kind of like mix that you know it was it, a it, it, was a, like a c s yeah, gas if, that, if, that, if, that it was
1: flammable when
0: yeah it, it, so a certain parts
1: per minute. Parts per million in an enclosed space, it's actually quite combustible.
0: But that seems like something that someone at that level should probably know.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I think that I know a guy that was down there as well that put the microphones in. So they they had very good uh, information on kind of what was happening in there. Um, I think so. I'm not a, I'm not a, it's, it was, it was the Davidians were good and these guys were bad kind of guy. Yeah. I'm saying there's a lot i do think that they set fires in there it's there's evidence that they, they did that on the other hand this guy you know koresh was telling them that these things were going to unfold and the fbi played right into their hand and mm-hmm. did ex- did exactly the goofy stuff that he said was going to happen so you know when you're dealing with cult-like people um because that's what you kind of call it right? um you, you have to account for that, that what if you do the things that they said are the terrible things that are going to happen, all, you're only giving more energy to their leader, whether you like that leader or agree with that leader. Um, so I think it both, it was foolish to pump the gas in there, and it was also foolish of them to set fire. But digress a little bit. Let's go back to the kids. Mm. So, and I'm not going to say that the U.S. military has been, has a perfect, in, in our warfare. So I'm not even not getting on that that yeah. uh, pulpit. But what I will say is that many, many times in my time in the military, and I know it's existed prior to me being in, and it's happened since I've left, is that children are very often the means by, with, and through we uh, show our softer side and and our connect with the adult that they're really the ones that we're more concerned about is the activity of the adults. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll do these things like you've, I'm sure you've heard of med caps and we were constantly finding opportunities to, okay, your child has an abscess tooth. Hey, mm-hmm. we have a guy that can fix your child's abscess tooth. You know, uh, your, your child has a bad infection in it's leg, we can uh, clean that up and bandage it and, and give you antibiotics. And you know the one of the things that you that makes people universal is everybody loves their kids everybody loves their own kids. And so we've always uh, tried to, if children were involved to see them as an asset uh, in that way that you could make that inroad possibly uh, with the, with the adult family member. And for the life of me, I don't understand why they didn't treat either one of those sieges in that way, because there were very, very small children. You know, there was a very small child uh, and a, um, and a t- teenage boy that was left alive at, ruby ridge and then i was it it bothered me and i wasn't even there it wasn't my operation um but it's just troublesome that it happened in america and many years later a few years ago my wife and i were traveling through texas and i said you know i'd really like to go there i want to put it into scale i actually just want to walk around i've seen it on tv a gazillion times i just want to go there and try to in my mind get a scale when you're standing there and we went and uh, there were Branch Davidians left there, and damn if they are not the nicest people I've ever met. Hmm. And they had no uh, outward animosity. There were memorials for everybody. There were memorials for the ATF guys. There, they they kept them clean. They put kept flowers on and stuff. And their attitude was it shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, um, some and I think there's a couple of sects of that. Some of them think koresh was a nut and some of them were like oh no he was inside um so they're not even all in agreement in that way but i didn't what i didn't get from them was a sense of hate for anybody for what happened but then you go over there's a monument to their people and what what really gets you if you go if you ever get a chance to go you should go one because you'll be shocked at just how things laid out two that the that are there one of them the one of the ladies there was one of the people in the siege Mm -hmm. and um her little daughter was like our um who was far too young to have been been alive during that time but mother was um and you see how many kids names like one year old many months old i mean so many young kids died in that and you're just like god how, how did that happen? And one other thing, without being creepy, when we were looking at the there's a building that's rebuilt on where the center of the big building was. It's not it's not nearly the size. Compound isn't isn't there anymore. But they've rebuilt the center building, and actually the the door and everything lines up with where the, the old door was. There, but I, you couldn't help but be drawn there to look back to the left as you're facing the front of this is a pool that they had to an in-ground concrete pool. And prior to that, there's a square, there's a concrete pad that has a square hole opening in it. And it it's hollow underneath. And I, my wife and I could not stop looking in that direction. it was really drawn to like there was just something eerie about that open hole just to the left of the building. And as it turns out, that's where the majority of the children uh, and women were found. That's where they were they were in there covered with um uh, <coughs> wet wool blankets. And that's pulled most of them out. Yeah. So there still seems to be an energy. Like there's no there's no sign that tells you that. You have to kind of find that out later. But um yeah, weird. Mm. Yeah. So then <laughs> so then we fast forward to another April nineteenth. And I'm in that same break break room because we use the same buildings and stuff over there. And I'm having lunch and uh, turn on the TV and uh, breaking news: giant explosion in Oklahoma City, the Murrah buildings bombed. Okay. And uh, obviously that's uh, you no. Know, they say Timothy Timothy McVeigh did it. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know. You know, I, don't, I, don't know. I, don't, I don't think it happened exactly the way they say it happened. Um, and I, I can explain that, um, but something happened there. Obviously somebody blew the building up and on April 19th, again, and if you can't draw a straight line between the preceding events to that, no way justifies it, but I sure think it, it explained how somewhere the heat, the temperature was coming up in the country, uh, as far as know, some segment of our country's views on the overreach of the federal government. And then they decided to lash out. And um again, you go back to, well, we always had we always had a pump to put air into the balloon, but we never had a spigot to take any any out at mm-hmm. any one of these events, right? To to de-escalate. And um and I think the I think it's ironic as hell that young children died at Ruby Ridge. Young children died at Nico and then buddy who was trying to avenge those things so apparently if that's the story goes kills a crap loaded young children in Oklahoma City how does that make sense
2: mm-hmm.
1: it doesn't right there's there's no real logic there
2: mm-hmm.
1: but back to why I think it's it's uh suspect the way they say it happened another year or so later I'm at sniper School that we had uh, 300 Winchester Magnum uh, sniper rifles, and we had a very good relationship with the uh, law enforcement, including the the Feds, in downtown Indianapolis. And we wanted to do things we're picking up in the world urban. Uh, that writing was on the wall that our our fights were going to be closer in urban areas. I think I mentioned that before. So, um, so we wanted to see if we could set up. During our final training exercises, a safe place in somewhere in Indianapolis to take a live fire shot, and uh, through the FBI and local law enforcement, we were able to to sort out how to do that. And one of the things that we decided we would was to make a bullet trap that would stop a uh, 300 Winchester Magnum round in the back of a Ryder truck. So that was basically a mobile bullet trap. You could drive it to this location open up the back and then there would be a three-dimensional target in there and, and this window of opportunity the students would and then we would close it up and drive it away and uh had all the safety features of you know making sure that the public wasn't around or anything like that big thing was that we wanted to make sure at all costs we could contain that so we decided hey three-ply is probably the way to go. So you take two sandbags and then a the third one in the center on its edge. We have three ply sandbags. We had taken it out to the range and we could not get a 300 wing mag round to squirt through three ply sandbags. So our idea was to just take the back of the truck and make a wall about, I don't know, almost six feet high, maybe five feet high of three ply sandbags. So we filled a gazillion sandbags. And we rented the biggest rider truck that you can get without having to have a commercial driver's license. So it's a pretty big truck. And we're in there, we got guys up there, we got a chain gang of guys just throwing sandbags up to dudes that are in there stacking this wall. And one of us, I was back by the tailgate outside, and I watched a guy as we were getting close to having this about three quarters of the way filled. A guy leaned like this on the back tailgate, and the front wheels of the truck came. And we all went, "Oh, crap!" And uh, we were like, "Holy jeez, and I looked at the tires, and you know those double wheel tires that looked like they were gonna explode. And I was like, everybody get away, uh, except the minimum amount of guys get sandbags out. So we had to unweight this thing, and we realized, and there is no way we can put as many sandbags in this thing as we want, not have this truck just you know doing a wheelie down the road, the tire tires off the road. So we went with less. And we really we made a box that was a lot lot less than what we wanted optimum. Decided we would we would uh, we trusted our guys, but we had to make a calculator risk of like, hey, nobody's going to be in the vehicle, and we wanted to make sure that if if any chance the bullet didn't get stopped, that it wasn't going to do damage to any of us or civilians. Uh, although maybe we're a little bit of a risk that it could have damaged the vehicle, so. Game day comes to drive this thing up to the city, and my buddy drove it. And mind you, these things were centered. They were not offset on one side. The, the, the uh, sandbags were in the dead center of the. He couldn't go faster than 35 miles an hour for the 30 something miles to go up to Indianapolis. And he said every time he came to any kind of turn, it was so off balance that he felt like the thing was going to fall over. Also, why you couldn't go very fast. So, I've looked at, you know, how they say the the bombing happened that that it was uh, anfo and that it was tamped. So that would mean that sandbags were all lined up on one side of the vehicle, and then the uh, explosive was on the other. So that the resistance of the of the sandbags or whatever would create a directional explosive, which is a technique we, we use that. Before. But it couldn't have happened that way. You couldn't have driven that. No way you could have driven it. We couldn't drive one that was, we could hardly drive one that was balanced. So there's no way it could have been that way. So I don't know how it happened, but I know it didn't happen that way. Interesting. So it's sort of like
0: a, um... Like just based on your own sort of experience in creating these sorts of things, like you're able to kind of like, and I wonder, like, if, because there was a bombing, is that sort of maybe something that was affected by just they're attempting to do their best to recreate what they think happened? But those people do that are doing the recreation, these bomb experts, might not have that technical background or knowledge that you have or, or No, I mean these, right? these
1: people are supposedly experts. This was, I'm sure, every bomb brain in the ATF was involved and the FBI. Hmm. And yet that's the story that we're told. And I just I don't I don't think that is plausible. Hmm. And I I you can't drive, I'd like to see somebody take it, recreate it, put the exact weight that they say was the tamping weight, where they say it was, and drive that thing several miles. Could go oh, drive it on a highway or a clover leaf trying to get on a highway and show me how that's done because we hmm. couldn't do it with less than what apparently was used and uh obviously i was not i mean i wasn't involved in the investigation i wasn't on the scene but i know from using explosives that that amount of sandbags uh for tamping there would have been a shitload of sand at the site as well i don't know if there was or there wasn't but there there would have been a ton of sand blown all over in a predictable (laughs) and i've been around i've been close to the ieds uh two of them and uh know what that feels like to be within a mile of a of a really really big vbied going yeah hmm. and what that does what it leaves
0: behind interesting hmm. interesting yeah so what what year were we up to now are we like 1994 1995 i'm trying to remember what year the oklahoma bombing was
1: uh yeah it's a good what's it 95 let's look it up
2: that's
0: another I know Waco I know Waco was like 1993 right so it happened I think like that was literally like a month after I was born so now I'm now these are all events from when I was uh yeah it was 95 okay so 1995 so then what else sort of happened during this time period like going forward from from the the uh, Oklahoma bombing there um so yeah it's 95 because I skipped a year in 94
1: I I was on deployment in uh, in the med and then came home and turned right around and went to Haiti in 94. so then I went back in the spring in 95 and that's when I was in the lunchroom again on April 19th mm-hmm. um so yeah, that takes us up to to 95 um I got <laughs> I've got an interesting story about time. Sure. So it's not necessarily about a watch, but it's a, it's a, it's an adult revelation about time.
0: I know you have some cool, I know you have some cool watch
1: stories as well, too, but definitely. Yeah. Well, I'll throw, I'll throw a cool watch story in there. Sure. Well, I'll I'll do the watch stories. So when we, uh, when we got back from that deployment in 1994, we were told, Hey, there's stuff going on in Haiti and you're going to have to go down there. Everybody's been doing some time in the barrel. It's a, Normally, there's a, a deployment cycle. You know, you know this platoon's going to be on for six months. It's going to get relieved by this platoon. It's going to get relieved by this platoon. And then there's a training uh, workup that goes to make sure everybody's ready for those eight. Then some anomaly happens, like a Haiti, and so you're kind of out of sequence, and you got to pull guys that are at some stage. And typically, the ready platoon, it, the platoon that's the most ready, is the one that just came back from deployment. So you're kind of unofficially, you just finished a maybe a year to 18 month work up in a six month deployment. And then you come home and, and you're like, you know that if something goes down, that's out of cycle, you guys are going to reconstitute and you're going to go down and deal with it. So that's kind of what happened with us. So we came home, we'd been on deployment for six months off of Bosnia. And they said, Hey guys, other people have been carrying the watch down. There's Haiti thing. something's going to happen. We don't know exactly when. So, so, except we to do because always during a full moon, cycle. So they're like, look, next full moon cycle doesn't happen until the end of September. So look, you guys go take a take a month off. And uh when you come back, you're gonna have to go do your time in the barrel down there for maybe up to three months. And we're like, oh my God. So we uh we all take 30 days leave. And then while I was on leave, uh they're like, oh by the way, it's all going to be over to beach. stuff. So it's not like we're gonna be flying in, in helicopters. We're gonna be swimming in or taking small boats. And at that time, I was like, "Well, if we're going to be doing all that," and we started practicing that. It's like I want a watch that I can see really well. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be shining a light on it or anything. And that Luminox Seal watch had just come out. That plastic thing had just come out, and it had the the tracer, uh, you know, tritium or whatever the heck that is. It, it just glowed like crazy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was like, "Ah, this is going to be perfect for this thing." So I remember going and purchasing my own. And then it was so bright, and this wasn't uncommon, I'd wear a uh, black a tennis sweatband over it. So that's how I would swam with a black tennis sweatband over this thing. And then when I needed to see it, I could just feel it back enough to see it. So that's how I actually swam that thing into Haiti for the uh, pre-D-Day reconnaissance um, mission that we did.
0: And um, what was going on in Haiti at the time, just for some context?
1: Hmm. Well,
0: that's really interesting story. So
1: <clears throat> I've heard some really interesting background. We might have to save the the political intrigue for another time. But okay. what we were told was going on was that uh, there was a a ruler there named uh, Raul Sidris. We had spirited a guy that we had installed in there, Aristide. We had uh, helped take he him over the beach. Some of our guys went in a year or two before. <clears throat> did a mission to get him out of there because the uh, political sentiment against him the guy that we wanted to run the place. Was good. So we, uh, we sent people in to go get him. <clears throat> and then we either wanted to reinstate him or someone like him. And this guy, Raul Cedras had, uh, he was a, a military, senior military officer had taken power. And, um, and so what ended up handing Happening is this saber rattling was going on that we're gonna sort of like before the Panama invasion, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do something well at the same time, but the conditions in that country are horrible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, because no they're horrible on a good day. But when you have political unheaval going on at the same time, they're just unbearable. And so people were fleeing Haiti in these refugee boats. And and man, if it floated, they there were body, there were living bodies in these things and um and it was awful so the u.s coast guard is doing these rescue missions out there and they would do is they would <clears throat> they would find them floating in the caribbean and and they would bring them the survivors they would bring to guantanamo bay cuba mm. and they had two camps set up one was and the cubans were doing the same thing so i don't know if you remember back in the 60s or whatever when it was that uh astro released all his worst prisoners Mm-hmm. Like, there you go, you want to go to America? And so all these uh criminals, you know, came to the United States. And um so the Cubans did it again. So they're like, all right, you guys want to go go, whatever. So there were both Cuban refugees and Haitian refugees just bobbing around the Caribbean. And I think it's been highly underreported, but we were uh staging, getting ready, doing training every day, getting ready for our piece. In the operation of actually going in there, and uh, we were watching the U.S. Coast Guard deliver all of these people. That the, a at cutter would come to Guantanamo Bay at night, and you couldn't fit another person standing on it. I was like, "Wow, I can't believe that ship's not turned over. There are so many people on it." And then they would take them and they would bus them up to these camps and try to take care of them. You know, get them fed and get them shelter and things. And we went down to talk to these Coast Guard guys. Just go, hey, man, how's it going? And they really looked like they'd been through it. And but what's going on? And they said, man, you have no idea. They said the sharks are eating these people out there. They said they're in these flimsy rafts and boats and they, they capsize, they sink. People start panicking because they see these sharks in the water and, and, it, and it rolls over. And he says it's literally like a race between us and the sharks to try to pull them out before were getting um, you know bitten by these things and I thought man what an underreported segment of that period of time and, and how horrible you know
0: well the more that that and the more that people get bit the more people are panicking the more sharks it attracts right so it just turns into yeah. this like horrible horrible thing of just like body parts and sharks basically yeah
1: and also that um, that people were willing to risk everything I mean they were taking their small kids and all of that to go out to sea. Just in the hope that they would get picked up and delivered to this tiny little piece of America mm-hmm. on Cuba—that's Guantanamo Bay, mm-hmm. that little sliver of America that we have purchased on there for base—was what they were hoping. That was a great deal for them. They would risk their lives. It puts things in perspective for you. About, uh, what, Amer- what America means to people that are really in dire straits mhm, mm-hmm.
0: for sure, for sure, so back to the mission then, so you got this luminox you' you yeah. doing your I guess your incursion into the area underwater what what happened next?
1: So we surface swam in, so we were we were dropped off um <clears throat> a thousand yards out, and that was due to uh an enemy uh, heavy machine gun position that we were aware of, so we didn't want to bring the boats in close enough to be engaged by that. And so we, we slipped into the water, and um, at the same time, my group slipped into the water and started to swim in. There was another group of guys uh, doing doing the same thing at another beach, and then there was another group of guys that were in zodiacs, and what they were doing was clearing the surface of the water to make sure there were no above surface obstructions, like say the mass of us. That those lanes were so air cushioned vehicles could. So they didn't want anything that would tear the skirt of the or damage the bottom of the air cushion vehicle. So, anyways, we swam in um, a couple hundred yards into the thousand yard swim. A couple of weird things happened. All of a sudden, I felt something in the water, which you know, and and the water was disgusting. If you've ever been in like a a uh, porta john in the summer that someone's let fester for far too long, could have been emptied a long time ago, and that ammonia smell of decaying, you know, urine and stuff. That's what the water smelled like. So strong in ammonia. And you could feel human waste every time, bumping off your hand every time you stroke. What they were also doing was, they were they would dump garbage. Oh, that's that animals, uh, I think, four in there. I'm sure I swam through a pile of intestines. I don't know if it was animal or human, but it definitely was a gut pile of intestines that I swam through. Um, they would just throw all this stuff in there, and there was really no strong, like, toral current to swoosh that stuff out. So it just kind of festered. This was up in Camp Haitian,
2: North Bend.
0: Was this also, like, kind of creating an attraction for a lot of the sharks in the area as well, too?
1: Yeah. And so we had had people that were uh, giving us information that were on the ground in there, and they were like, hey, there is, the the sharks are horrible here. Uh, somebody had set up a dive right to try to attract people to put dive, and they had to abandon it because they said yeah we get killed the, the sharks are just insane here but we swam through really shark infested water I didn't get bumped by sharks
0: Swam over it, a net <laughs> what is like the like I guess like that's a part of the job so like what is the preparation or training you take for that consideration of like hey I have to literally swim through shark infested waters where there's sharks actively yeah. eating people like what, what, what sort of thing from like a Navy SEAL perspective does one do to prepare for something like that? You know, whether it's a dive or a swimming op, it comes up in the brief.
1: It's one of the hazards that comes up in the brief, you know. Um, Places that are more memorable, like that is one of the most sharky places that that I've had to swim through. Um, East Africa, the coast of East Africa is another one of the most uh, dangerous places I've ever swum, uh, especially a long distance. Um, But you know, I, I think if a shark wants to eat you, it's gonna eat you. They and I don't know why they don't wanna eat you sometimes and other times they do. uh, uh you know, obviously I think if you are putting off some sort of blood in the water, <clears throat> you're probably a lot more interesting to them. Um but some places, you know, sharks see humans as a food source because avers are thrown in the water when people die, like in East Africa and there's a famous, uh, you hear people talking about this famous in Somalia, the camel factories. So they you know, they process camel meat and they take all the stuff that they don't actually process into edible meat and they throw all that into the into the coastal waters and so you know, they're scavengers sometimes so mm. so it's funny you know, there's no like, okay if, if you get bumped by a shark, we'll go into seal shark competitive mode Hey, You know, it's basically like, hey, I just hope you don't get bumped by, by sharks. And if it gets real bad, you know, I think everybody's going to fight to the end. There was a SEAL team. There was a squad that was pushed out of the water. It was during the, um, during operation, combat operations in Panama that, uh, they were going to set up and do an ambush or clear one of Noriega's properties that was on a water line. And the guys were getting harassed by sharks so bad. They were like, Hey, I'd rather take my chances. than. In the uh, teeth and they got out of the water I
0: heard I heard a story once about yeah it was, it was a seal team as well too and they were going after some terrorists I want to say it was probably in Africa um and they went to his compound and it was this compound was built outside of like a or right next to or on like a, an old uh, meat processing plant where they put everything into the water and i guess what something happened with this op and the team had to leave and they had to like hop on the boats and be towed behind the boats and mm-hmm. one, one guy was being like dragged through the shark infested waters and the, the one seal member had both of his shoulders dislocated during the whole thing as well mm-hmm. too and like you hear about these crazy stories and oh that's a real i mean if you're spending any time in the water in these like uh sketchy areas i guess it's definitely something that you have to consider and sort of is a real hazard but i anyone who's like listened to my show for a long period of time knows that i have yeah. this very unhealthy fear of like sea life so i don't think it's unha- unhealthy you're uh, in your world man. So. i just i just i can't imagine having to like you know just even recreationally going in the water and being around that stuff and then having to like actually have like an objective focused mission you have to be focused on as well too and it's like you know, everything mm-hmm. is very controlled in a lot of those environments, but then there's this uncontrolled kind of third party being mother nature that can be like the ultimate asshole when it comes to these sort of things. And you just, it's, it's freaky. It's just freaky stuff, but, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> enough about the sharks though, I guess. So you, so, <laughs> so you got, so you got through the water you, or you're yeah. in the water, you're going in towards the shore, you're dropped out a thousand yards out. What happened? So we there? got
1: so about 200 yards in the swim, uh, we swam over a net that was being drawn in by a dugout boat. Mm-hmm. And uh, why we weren't seen is because it was really foggy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which was great. When we started the mission, there was a lot of fog on the water. So um, <clears throat> we were pretty much invisible. But if you're a fisherman and you feel a lot of resistance on your net, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know? So they start pulling it in faster. Oh, we got something. And uh, I got over the net. My my partner that was the closest to me uh, was hung up on it. I swam towards him. I could see he was, it looked like he was making progress, getting free, but he wasn't free. And then I heard um, whatever paddle or whatever they were using, I heard it hit the side of the boat, which gave me a sense of distance. And I was like, oh, crap. It's like not very far. We just can't see it. and They can't see us, but it won't be long. And um, I pulled my knife out because I was like, I'm either going to have to take those guys out or the... Or cut my buddy, and I I went to try to uh, start cutting on the net, and then he, he popped loose. Came up with the bare blade and that and playing into the net. He was loose, and uh, you could hear the guys as we swam back. Hear the dudes whispering to each other, you know, in Creole, probably like, "What the hell is?" This? And they had no idea. So he keeps swimming. Uh, we do the rest, the 800 yards, and then there was uh, we got into chest deep water, and this is where. It was very very surreal so the whole time we we're swimming in there's voodoo drums on one side there's mountains that basically ring it's like a uh it's a cape you know? so there's there's um terrain features on both sides and so in pretty far away but they're like communicating you can hear it, and they're, like voodoo drums are being over here and then they're being responded to over here <clears throat> and then the beaches that we were assigned to go look at that no one is on these beaches There were bonfires on the beach. So we're like, and you don't get to pick new beaches. They want you to go look at the ones that they assigned you. So we're like, we're going to go look at a beach that has a bonfire on it. Oh, great. And we got into where, where you're in transition. We were supposed to get out of the water and go creep around. So we're in about chest deep water. And it's the most vulnerable time because you're close to shore. You're well within a rifle shot, you know, of somebody that's there. And you take your fins off. And so now you can't move fast in the water if you have to swim because you just got jungle boots on. And you can't, it's hard to get out of the water fast when you're in chest deep water. So that's that point where you're committing. Okay, I think the coast is clear. Our fins off and we are just taking our, we're, we're taking our fins off. And all of a sudden we can see the people on the beach start grabbing boats, these dugout boats, and launching them and heading out towards us. And so we wouldn't, they launched the first one and it was kind of coming directly towards us. So we're, we're there's, there's three of us. We're in a little cluster. And so we're like, dook, 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 you know, like a, the old Atari game. Let's just move this way and it'll go by, and then we'll come back. So we come back like this and then here comes another boat towards us. So now we move this way. And then at a certain point, we're like, all right, they, this will probably be the last boat. And then we can go a chore. <clears throat> we get back to where we wanted to get out and they launch another boat. So we had to adjust and move down again but we had lost track of the two boats that had already been lost. We couldn't see them. And the next thing you know, they were right, right on top of us. So what we think that was in hindsight was that these people were being paid uh, or compensated in some way to, to look for signs of a military invasion. Um, and there were supposedly bounties out or whatever, but you know, ultimately how, how, uh, how aggressive were they? Well, they they were out there at night looking for something. And these guys were didn't have nets and stuff. So they were just out, I think, looking for us or somebody like us. And so not all of the boats saw us, but one. Uh the others were pretty close. And uh I I heard I felt two backs up against mine. It was my two buddies. Now we're in a little pyramid of our backs are to each other. And we're in a circle, guns facing out, obviously. And, and I could hear their suppressors draining. So we were each carrying an MP5 with a sound suppressor on it. And there's I knew the sound of their guns had just broken water. And I can hear the water draining out of the can, which means somebody's getting ready to shoot somebody. And then I heard two safety selectors go off. And I'm like, all right, so my buddies are on fire and they're lined up. And now I'm lined up on this boat. and And I see this dude in the boat. And he, he whispers to me in, um, uh, it was like broken French Creole. Um, he, but he basically says, Hey, you man in the water, what are you doing? Is, is what he was trying to convey. I, I had enough French in high school that I knew what he was saying. And, uh, I didn't even respond. To and, um, that the electricity in the air between us, I remember I could hear my heartbeat was so God dang loud. I remember thinking, these are the last beats of either my heart or his, but we're we're down to the last you know moments of living for somebody here, and then ultimately, I think they felt like yeah if we if we act like this didn't happen, it didn't happen, so they just backed quietly backed away. That's when I got even more scared because what what would you think would happen then? that they're going to get just far enough away to start yelling "Arrow over here, you know, and then, then it's on. And, uh, they didn't, hmm. they backed away. It was a, it was like the biggest live and let live moment I ever had in, in my life. And, uh, and I'm glad we didn't have to kill those cats, but we would have, and they moved off. And then we, uh, we decided, Hey, it's too busy here for us to actually get out. And by then we were close enough. We had pretty much seen what we needed to see to deliver the intelligence information. We got our fins back on and we we swam back thousand yards back,
0: and got recovered. Wow, that's yeah. Why I mean those are the so those are sort of like the real raw moments in in combat that you you hear about and you see a lot in like Hollywood and things like that, but you don't really hear about a lot you know in real life. You know, like the, that they have that moment where it's yeah. sort of that like, hey you can go mind your own business we'll mind ours (laughs) and we can both walk away from this alive today and that's you know you just don't don't hear it we don't see that type of stuff really happening a lot from firsthand experience that's really 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 interesting you know we talked a little bit about um there's been a few different other stories that you know we sort of alluded to and talked about as Mm -hmm. well uh sort of in preparation for this year you know I, i kind of want to. we talked a little bit about panama Mm -hmm. Uh, as well, sort of just in in comparison to the Haiti thing and what was going on Mm -hmm. there. Can you talk a little about some of how Panama played a role, um, in your career?
1: Well, it was the first time that a a seal that I knew was killed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the realization I, I joined the team in the spring of 88 and, and by December of 89, you know, somebody that I associated with frequently, was was killed by you know, enemy gunfire. So, the realization that okay, well, this is this is real. This this isn't just training. Some something could happen, and you could be involved. That sunk in, and I wasn't really afraid of it. But I don't think I think we felt like we hadn't been doing a lot of urban warfare training, mm-hmm. and that that had those guys in a semi-urban environment, right? They're around airplane hangars and an open uh, tarmac, and and they were working in numbers that generally at that during that era seals were were not accustomed to working in elements bigger than 16 men <clears throat> and they were uh in that episode so I just I think we a lot of us felt like hey we need to develop some tactics and maybe different I might, might even be different equipment something but something's got to change because doing it online in an open area in front of a you know, built up area where people can be concealed and behind hardened um, cover. We should never do that. Again.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. What about like, yeah. you'd also talked a little bit about um, some time in Eastern Europe, right? So I know mm-hmm. that there, there's sort of an interesting story around 1991 in Eastern Europe where, you know, maybe it sounds like something may have happened. And then you also would talk about Bosnia. So yeah. if you can kind of share both of those sort of perspectives as well, I'd be interested to hear about what was your role in Bosnia and also kind of what was Happening in in 1991 in Eastern Europe.
1: Okay, I want I want uh, something you said a minute ago um, tease my memory, and I want to uh, get it out before I, before I forget. You know, when we were talking about Ruby Ridge and we were talking about Waco, we were talking about the different elements that that brought the um, the ratcheting up. Mm-hmm. And one of the components about that, because of when we were talking about Haiti, of um, my memory. <clears throat> what I think, and it's I think this is um, something that that. Constantly happens in law enforcement is that fear is the element that drives the use of lethal force. And so, but my perception of fear and your perception of fear may or may not be the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so, I think that you know, if you talk to guys that uh, you know that use lethal force, uh, maybe even Lon Horatio, he might have said, articulated a fear not for himself, for somebody else. Mm-hmm. But then you say to yourself, okay, well, so he can say the right words to, to get the, the people that that care to go, okay, you've articulated fear and, and that's justifiable shooting. But I think that it's uh, I think it's far too prevalent. Um, and so I take this to Haiti because I was, but I didn't pull the trigger on that guy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I actually didn't even take my MP5 off safe. And it was one of the things, because man, you hear everything. I heard those safeties and my two buddies snap off. Uh, and I knew what was getting ready to happen on their end. And when we all got back to the ship and talked it over, their attitude was like, because I was more experienced than those guys. And they were like, Man, we had our safeties off and we just knew you were going to shoot that guy. And we just didn't want to be far behind. And we and they they're like, Why didn't you shoot him? We're baffled, why didn't you shoot that guy? Because everything there, as far as fear. Met the criteria. I said, Well, I didn't see a weapon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, yeah, but it was dark. He was right on us. He could all he could have done is yell. Been, I know, but I said, I didn't feel like I was behind it. I felt like it was developing to a lethal contact, but I thought I could, I still have time to give it a couple more seconds. To see what happens? And if he produces a weapon, I'm going to dust it. But I was confident in my shooting ability. I was really confident in my shooting ability. I was like, I'm just gonna give this two more seconds. And so in retrospect, I mean, long before I became this old guy that I am now, I was glad that I did that, you know. Because you know, in the sense of what was going on in Haiti, killing some guy over that, he was probably put up to it, or go out there and go look for people. Somebody lose their life over that is uh is kind of stupid. Um, but had he had he shown me a weapon. He would not no longer be alive. But I didn't. And the funny thing is when they, I got an award for that. And uh when they issued that, they go, hey man, you know, you know that if you had shot that guy, you'd be getting the same award. The wording just would have been different. Hmm. And that's happened twice in my career. It happened later after 911. Same sort of thing happened where everybody went, I cannot believe you didn't shoot that guy after X happened. And I said, I felt like I could give it another second out because I hadn't seen the weapon. And uh, lo and behold, it worked out better. But I did, once again, at a Navy comm, they, they were like, if you'd have shot them, it was would have been the same award. It just wouldn't be great.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well that articulation, not just, you know, the general articulation, like the, uh, the objective mm-hmm. articulation, but there's also the subjective articulation as well too, right? So when yeah. you're doing something like that, like if you're based on your skills, abilities, background, things like that, if you feel, hey, I got that extra second to wait, that's awesome, right? And obviously, it, it played out in not just one situation, but other situations where people walked away alive because of that. And you yep. know, it, I think
1: it, I think that realistic, really hard training where you can get those uh, apprehension levels up, but also build super confidence in your ability to handle your your weapon system, whether it's law enforcement or military. I think is actually better, better, way better for the people that you may come. To. Those are civilians or You're less likely to to shoot somebody if you're less scared because absolutely. you're like, eh, I, I don't much like this. I'm apprehensive, but I can, I can work my way through it. Absolutely, absolutely. So you want to talk about '91
0: in Eastern Europe? Yeah, well, I, I know yeah. that we had we had a list. This we had a list of a couple of stories you yeah, right. wanted to make sure we hit. So I will definitely want to get into that. And then and then I know we have quite a couple, or have a couple of uh, like kind of post 911 stories to get into as well mm-hmm. too. So uh, yeah,
1: so we were deployed in uh, in Europe in uh, the one and came home in uh, December 91 that was a really interesting time to be out there because the, the fall of the Soviet Union happened and um so at the time we were staged at a, we had a unit that was staged in Scotland and um of all places right and we were we were having a great deployment we were doing a lot of cross training with our counterparts in Norway and France and Germany and um who else somebody else but anyways um oh the brits Hmm. and um learning a lot and and just uh you know having a good time too well one day in this place that we were staged had one of the biggest runways in the world it was one of the ones on the list that was an alternate for the station and uh, had to so it was a super long runway so one day i come back from our gym or whatever and my chief goes hey everybody uh, grab your stuff and, and stage, get ready because something happened. And we're like, what? He said, an airplane maybe is heading our way. to Pick us up and uh, fly us out to, to the Adriatic. And we're like, why? And, they, and he said, well, with all this stuff that just happened in, in the Soviet union, for some reason, a, uh, a Russian ship boarded an American flagship with like a company of Russian Marines or something. And, uh, and they're hold- they're on it. Firepower. And this uh, aircraft is coming to take us, and if they don't leave that ship, we we'll take this thing down. I'm like, what? So uh, everybody was on like strip over, you know, with their their gear ready to go for a couple hours. And then they were smart though. The, the uh, Soviet military they didn't occupy it for very long. They had it for a short period of time. They knew somebody would be coming to do something, so they got off of it. And then then they. Uh, Descrambled scrambled us but that was just one of those weird surreal things where you're like did we really almost just go launch to take back one of our chip bunch of you know soviets holy shit and then another funny uh it's well that wasn't funny that was wow uh the world is the world is going to hell
0: what did you like in that moment like that has to be especially with everything that was going on in the world at that time that has to be like the ultimate moment that you've sort of been training for or waiting for right in Mm -hmm. your role at that time is like, wow, the Russians are now invading an American ship and they need, they need help. Right. What, before you knew that they had sort of, they were backing off or they had decided to reconsider their poor decision making, what was going through your head? Like beyond that? Like, what are you thinking at that moment? Like, are you thinking like, holy crap, we're going to like, this isn't a cold war anymore. Are you thinking? No,
1: no, I wasn't thinking in the sense of uh, like, know your 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 future role in history when this settles and it's it's uh you're so trained to mission plan Mm -hmm. that everybody has a role so i was an ordinance rep and an intelligence rep so i'm i'm going into the unit and i'm asking hey does anybody know what the ship is do we have blueprints of the ship can we get blueprints of the ship do we you know we get pictures of it so we know how it lays out how many floors it has and superstructure what's the size and you're, you're already going into that mode and then on the ordinance end of things you're, you're on ammunition and, and, uh, you know, and then you're asking about key logistic things for any type of movement. You're like, how, when this aircraft comes in, how much room do we have? Do we carry on stuff, you know, how much space do we have? How many bags can we take and how do we want to lay out? And then somebody goes, well, oh, what's the temperature of the water? You know, all the things that are pertinent. So you get, you know, you don't have a lot of time to sit around and commiserate, um, you're busy planning and then when it gets canceled, then you spend the rest of the day putting
0: everything. <laughs> That's fair. So, um, I know there was something about in a, well, you were in, the, in there in 1991 in Eastern Europe. There's something about a demotion that happened. Can we talk about that a little bit? A what? I'm just trying to read through some of the, I think this might've been a, uh, a typo from deployed to demotion. Oh. <laughs> yeah, being demoted in Europe during the collapse of the Soviet oh, de- Union. Deployed, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get demoted. Good. Um, I'll well, yeah. that part out then. <laughs> oh, I see that.
1: That's funny, man. The auto spell had its way. No worries. So this was, real, this was really interesting. So that there was that thing that happened. And then um, then we went and we spent a month in Germany uh, working with the comp swimmers doing a, they put on a combat swimmer training course for us, which was fantastic. But in December of 1991, man, they were improving the roads like you could see how capitalism worked Mm. they were improving the roads paving them to go into berlin but the roads coming out still had potholes and were were all crappy you know so it was kind of like you know capitalism like let's get in there let's heal this place you know let's bring money in and freedom And, and everything was all this energy you could physically see the roads were better going in than they were coming out, which was crazy. But we were on a road going in one time. We decided we wanted to go to Berlin because we all wanted to buy CZ-75 missile. There was a way that you could buy these guns on base at the Rodden Gun Club, and then you could get a uh, – a, this was basically a document from the American embassy that allowed us to, to bring them back and uh, import them into the United States. It was really cool. But you know, we are like, hey, let's go get these yeah, CZ-75s were real popular then. So we grabbed a case of nine mil because of course once you get your gun, what do you want to do? You want to go shoot it. And there were all these ranges on the bases in Berlin. So we're in a brown car. There's four of us in a round car. We got a case of 2,000 rounds of nine millimeter and civilian clothes. And we get stuck in this traffic jam miles out from Berlin. We're just teetering along trying to trying to get into the city. And and half the guys are asleep. I'm nodding off and all of a sudden I look up. Somebody else is driving. I looked up. And it's as far as you can see, basically, a like their version of a uh, personnel truck, the deuce and a half, Soviet deuce and a half, full of Soviet troops with AK seventy fours. And they're all what do board troops do if they're back by the tailgate? They are looking out and looking at the passengers out there going And I just remember thinking how surreal that was. Like, this is who was, you know. We were told it was our enemy all these years. They have no idea who we are. We're just dudes in civilian clothes driving by. But I I often wondered, like, if you could do a, okay, press this button and find out who that is in the car. Oh, because I know that they are Soviet troops with AK-74s. What would they do if it was like, oh, those are four Navy SEALs right there? Not what would we react to be, if anything at all. It was just weird to be rubbing shoulders practically mm-hmm. with these guys. And, and there's no fighting or nothing. Mm-hmm
0: very strange yeah it's got to be a different a different perspective kind of like seeing during that period where everything is sort of starting to i guess kind of defrost and and everyone needs to kind of figure out their place and where they're going to go and what's going to happen now right it's a lot of lot of chaos and disorganization following something like that right i mean
1: the russian military then was was awful because it was almost like a starved animal they were starving i don't think they had been paid in a long time i don't think their their logistic train uh was taking care of them on uh, because if you, you know if you looked at the black market it was anything goes anything you wanted that they had was the they were selling and uh yeah i picked up some really cool soviet relics when
0: i was, when I was over in Berlin. right on that's really interesting very very cool mm-hmm. we talked about bosnia a couple times as well too mm-hmm. and, and sort of that engagement and Again, like this is something where I was quite young. So what really was the context about what was going on in Bosnia? And then what was your role that you played there in Bosnia?
1: Uh, well, I've studied the cause the of it uh, a lot more lately because my wife was interested. And so we, we watched a bunch of documentaries about it. It's really, uh, you know, between Sarajevo and then then the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia. It's really horrible how it all started. It shouldn't have started. And a lot of it you can attribute to uh, politicians with an agenda that, that uh all of the uh media and started just pumping hate speech into the communities and, and stirring up um rivalries that that really aren't there on a day-to-day basis. All of a sudden it segmented the population where people cared about oh stuff they never cared about before and it and it turned into bloodshed. Our role was um it really got started as we were on our way on deployment. So in 90, in the fall of ninety three I was at sniper school when when the whole um, um, Operation Gothic Serpent, which everybody knows is Black Hawk down, when that happened. And uh, I was in in Indianapolis wrapping up sniper school and that and it was on the front page, and we were calling back and finding out all the details of it. And within about twenty four hours of that, the command called and said, hey, would you like to go over there? We're, we're, we have a platoon that's over in that area right now in Somalia, and they could use some wind Mag sniper rifles. You want to grab some for them and for you, and then you, we'll fly out there, and then you stay with them. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so I did. And when I got back, they were like, hey, get slight game delay. Instead, we're going to put you in the platoon that's going to relieve them on site, bring the rifles with you. And that's how we were going to get out there. So we're, I was...
0: Before we jump in, th- so you were at you were involved in Black Hawk Down, like
1: you were. No, I wasn't there. I was in Indianapolis, but I was so there was, was fighting that happened after. that. Okay, so we had a SEAL platoon in there. Um, there were there were other elements that came in and, and rotated to get the group that had been wounded and torn up, and they actually got into quite a quite a, and so. That It was, you know, that's not well publicized. And of course, the movie stops where all that happened. Um, but we basically were like, okay, we're putting people in here and you did this to our guys and now something's going to happen. It wasn't a huge escalation because ultimately the Clinton administration didn't really want to escalate things too much. But to a degree, the military was like, hey, we can't have this happen. So we have to plus up. And it was during that ramp up that I ended up in this platoon um, as a additional sniper and i had these extra sniper rifles for the guys that were already over there and the presumption was that i was going to marry up with the guys that were there to deliver these rifles and what ended up happening as we were coming across the atlantic on the carrier on Oga, okay, all of this stuff in bosnia really started and so instead of going through the med and doing a right turn and going through the uh canal down into the red sea and off of somalia we did whoop, did a left turn up into the Adriatic, and uh, they started running. You know those NATO um, combat operations jets flying over doing air support for Bosnia. So there was a station. It was a box basically that we stayed in off of off of that whole area um, called Groundhog Station, Groundhog Day, and uh, we were in that box about six. And our role then was to be the combat uh, search and rescue component for any aircraft that came off our carrier that got shot down or maybe a NATO aircraft. And um, we would be the ones to go in. Whether So we had a package that we had feet wet. So if the aircraft made it to the to the Adriatic and the and the air crew ejected, uh, we had a way to get them in the water. And then we had, a, we had the dry land uh,
0: extraction as well. <clears throat> so um, there's a period you mentioned earlier or I don't, I don't think you mentioned it in this episode yet but there was a period in time uh, near the end of the 1990s after you've, you've talked a lot about a lot of the work that you did in the 1990s where you sort of took a break you were out of the Navy for a year can you kind of talk mm-hmm. about what precipitated that and then what made you come back
1: yeah so I did a um I did a workup in uh, I started a workup in '96 for a '97 deployment that spanned the winter months. So it went from '97 into '98, and I had uh, I gotten married in '96. I um, had a child uh, in '96, and then um, and then I I came back, and so I had a small I had a small daughter, I had a wife. Um, she really did not dig the SEAL team wife life. Um, mm. it's hard on her when I was gone in the winter, and but all that sort of stuff. So I felt some pressure to, to change things up. And when I came back from that deployment, I was, uh, I was put back as an instructor in our training department and then, uh, we got pregnant again, had another daughter in, uh, 98 and, um, and it was getting time like to think about, okay, what are, what are you going to do? I know what I wanted to do professionally. Um, uh, My wife at the time wasn't really on board with it, but I was trying to convince her. And then what ended up happening is they were trying to force detail me to a, um, a place that I'd, I just didn't want to go. And it wasn't even me. It was like, they were trying to force me to um what's it called shore duty. So you're basically not going to be deploying. You're going to be an instructor. And, um, when my wife at the time found out where it was, there was no sugarcoating that. It was basically, I was going to be a free fall instructor out in Yuma, Arizona for a couple of years. <laughs> and uh, I said, hey, Yuma, you know, it's, it's, it's nice out there. Well, her dad had built, was an engineer and had built a prison or something out there. And, and they found out in short order, no, Yuma is not nice. You would not like it there. So she's like, well, you're going to go. You're going by yourself. I'm taking it on So. <clears throat> I was like, hey, if I'm going to end up with a divorce over going to shore duty that I don't want to go to, I might as well just. So I just, I gave it a try, which was weird because I really wanted to be in the news. And uh, so I, I got out and I gave it a try. I went and referred dad for a year. And uh, I disliked that a lot. And she and I grew apart. And so by 2000, it was obvious I was coming back into the military so i re enlisted in july and the way the way the rules are is that if you break service and you come back in they back then they send you right back to the command that you broke with. and so i was at a seal team they called up the you know command master chief like hey dave wants to come back and he's like send him we'll take him so i was on a fast track to come back and uh, it actually worked out If I hadn't had that break for a year, heartbreaking as that was personally, um, professionally, it lined me up for everything that happened after that. So I came back in in 2000, um, worked in our air ops department for a few months, uh, platooned up as an LPO in a platoon. We started our work up. We worked up all winter, and we literally were on pre-deployment leave on on 9-11. I was actually where my kids and my ex-wife were on nine ten in court with her. And then everything happened on nine eleven. And then uh, you know, some people have a lot of bad behaviors during and there's a lot of hurt hurt feelings and people do a lot of nasty things during a uh, contention. Court. But by the evening of nine eleven, uh everybody I to see the kids as much as I can before I went. So nine eleven was on a Tuesday. The the one of the first airplanes that was allowed to leave uh, the Midwest where I was at the time, I was on and it was almost empty. Nobody could clear security and uh, flew back to the East coast was picked up by a team member out in and briefed. And then we went and um, we actually went and did some preparatory stuff that was kind of important on the American East coast and then came back and finished packing our bags and loaded up and, and flew, flew to Europe and, and it was a wild ride from there. We ended up in ended up in the Middle East.
0: <clears throat> Before we get into some of the nine eleven uh, 11 and post-9 eleven ops that you were on, there's mm-hmm. one story that you had mentioned, and we had talked about I think off camera previously, was but mm-hmm. we actually had met two of the terrorists uh, that yeah. were involved in nine eleven. Can you talk about so, that?
1: in the in the winter of two Yeah? It it's uh it's really surreal, but in the winter of uh two thousand in two, to, 2001 into 2001 was when we were doing our workup appointment was scheduled to happen in uh September and uh by that time I I was living with my my present wife uh, she was my girlfriend we were living down at the oceanfront in uh, Virginia Beach and, and it was actually pretty happy times but I was gone a lot Was you know gone for two weeks you know home for a few days gone for two weeks it's kind of the battle rhythm when you're doing a workup and uh she owned her own hair shop at down at the ocean she really had a, a good feel for people, professional people like firemen police officers military people uh judges lawyers you know people that grooming standards up she had a really good uh all of those types of people and people that would uh military people or firemen or um EMS people or, or cops often put their stickers on, on her chop window, right? So like we were here, you know, So well, she had an accumulation of, you know, fighter squadron stickers and filmmaking stickers, and police stickers and all of that. And she was really into the fire department and EMS, volunteer, um, uh, EMT and paramedic. So she knew all those people. That was kind of her circle, and I would come back into town, and and we'd have you know get ready to go out on the town for to you know, each other. Hey, let's go tear the town up and have fun. And she'd be like, Hey, there's these guys that are coming in. They're Arab guys. They're some. They're up to something. And I was like, eh. So when your girlfriend's telling you that, you know, like, what do you mean these Arab guys up to something? She goes, I oh, Really bad feeling. And then she would tell me for their behaviors, you know, and and. uh, so I was like, "Oh well, what do you want? You know, what do you want me to do? What do you think they're up to?" Because I don't know, because I can just feel it off them. Their energy is really bad. They're up to something. And uh, I said, "You know, I'm a seal, not a not an FBI guy. If you feel that strongly about it, you know, call call the police or somebody and say, well, they haven't done anything criminal. I can just tell they're bad." Like, yeah, okay, well you know, let me know if, if one of them offends you. She goes, well, they do. They, they get in my personal space and uh, they say demeaning things to me. You know, stuff like, well, of course, this isn't your shop, which it was. I know, it's my shop. They're like, no, a man owns it. A woman could never own this, that kind of stuff. So there were a lot of indicators in the in the uh, way they interacted with her that these were not people that were, they spoke English, but they were not from the United States. <laughs> so Tracy would point them out to me sometimes down at the ocean front in the winter, all locals. It's not like you're blending in with a lot of, um, tourists during that time of year. So, so they stood out. So we would see them at a pizza place and she, Hey, there they are right there. So I'd get a good look at them. And then they'd come in her shop periodically when I was gone and act like jerks. And then she'd tell me about it. So one day I was in her shop and they were in there and, uh, was sitting and reading a magazine, and I felt somebody staring at me. And I looked up and I saw somebody, and I now know it was Muhammad Atta. He was a short dude. And that look that you see in the picture where he's got the tough guy look on his face, you know, that famous picture of him, that's what he was looking at me like. And uh, I remember him staring at me like a few feet away, and I caught his look and I was like, What the fuck are you looking at? And he went, Doop, put his head down just like that which was what's told me you're not from here. So probably even in Canada, right? If you have a grown man says, what are you looking at? You either take it up or you take it down. So you go, I'm going to you, or you go, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be rude. Right. But you don't, you don't act like it didn't happen. That's not, that's not a Western trait, right? In the middle East, I would see that, wow. but not, but not in the West.
0: When it happens so, here, it happens here in Canada, you're right. There definitely is going to be a oh, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> <laughs> but
1: so I had to give it the, the twist, right? Because he because he wouldn't acknowledge it, so he looked down. So I was like, I, I probably said something like typical fucking error or something, and just to try to, all right, you know, you want to stare at me like that? And he and he just kept his head down like that, passive. And I was like, okay. But fortunately, unfortunately. I have one of those uh, uh, minds. Like if I've ever seen you before, and you don't want to be seen, you're screwed. Because I have a ability to. I will re- if I've seen a face and I see it again, I will instantly know that I've seen that face. The rub comes that I may not instantly know context. Of where I actually have a funny story. Story about it. but uh, but I'll know it, and eventually I'll assess it, right? And I'll I'll just keep thinking in the back of my mind and it'll come to me. So um so I had that familiar, I mean, had his face burned in there. And the guy that he was with that my wife had been cutting their hair was uh Marwan al-Shahi. So those were the two people that were at the controls of the individual aircraft that hit the north and south towers. And um yeah, so my my wife's Um, sense of their danger and being up to something was dead on Mm -hmm. nobody in a million years would have guessed that and we were both in close proximity and she actually cut their hair
0: wow so that is that that crazy (laughs) it's crazy and it also like i guess i mean i think everybody when that happened felt like it was so close to the home, but especially for you guys having actually met them or seen them around and sort of like, you know, it's pretty, it's very, very few people when you consider the grand scale of all the people that were impacted by that probably came into contact with these guys at all while they were in the United States. Well, I think a lot of people did come in contact with them.
2: How
1: many remember it yeah. is a different, is a different number. Right. Um, I, I would say it's a common theme. If you, if you read any, um, uh, any reporting or anybody that that had a similar experience to us, it all seems the same. They mm-hmm. all talk about how they've been in their personal space. They they were demeaning. They made, they made them feel ill at ease and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. it's so it makes you wonder. And they were leaving that skid mark of just kind of being jerks everywhere they went. How did they? How did they get so far without somebody really mm-hmm. looking at them? You know,
0: you had mentioned I think that you were in a platoon uh, in, the, in the days following nine eleven. Um, that had sort of a uh, leadership interdiction operation type role. Can you kind of talk mm-hmm. about what that entailed and what sort of the things were that you did during that period? Yeah. So we, um, so in that platoon that uh, I was on on uh,
1: pre-deployment leave on 9-11, um, I was the LPO of that platoon. So within days we deployed. Um, we ended up on a ship uh, heading in the North Arabian Sea and uh, ultimately, they they said, hey, uh, we think that uh, by then they knew, you know, Osama bin Laden was responsible and and uh, and he had a large family and um, and a fighting age males like sons. Fight. So they were trying to track them down and they said, hey, we think some some Navy analysts uh, assessed that they thought that a couple of his sons were trying to flee Pakistan. And and get to the east coast of Africa,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Malia or or maybe Yemen or something like that. And um so they said, Well, we think it'd be good if we can get these. So they ginned up enough probable intel, and really looking back at it, it was really very thin. It's like we wouldn't launch on something like that now. Back then, um, we did. So they said, Hey, this ship right here, we think has one or both of the boys on it and um so they launched they uh, the president authorized the capture kill mission and uh so we launched and we did uh we have two types of ways of taking down uh, a ship at sea that's an underway so the ship is underway and um this was going to be at so these are called leadership interdiction operations so we're going to interdict the kind of leadership and our role was to creep <clears throat> up on the, on the boat at night while it was underway and board the vessel, uh, without them, without their knowledge, if we could, and, um, uh, and take the vessel and uh, clear every space a human being could be on, on it and either kill or capture, um, you know, the people that we were targeting. And, uh, and so, yeah, we did that. So it was the first Leo boarding that was, was done in, uh, late November, early December of 2001. Mm-hmm. On that one, when you ask about like that one, I had a sense. I remember being we had launched, we were in the uh, our speedboats, our ribs and where our ribs are clustered up. We had two ribs by each other and we were in like a radar blind spot behind this vessel. We had worked out the geometry so we could slide in behind it and it wouldn't know. We were there. It's like two o'clock in the morning, you know. And um, we were still at that point. We were at a set point. So we read radio we're at the set point. It means we're ready. We're ready if you give us the word to do it. And uh, I knew when we passed that pro word that that authority for us to launch had to go all the way back to President Bush. And I was shocked at how fast it came back. Hmm. So that radio transmission didn't go direct directly to the White House. From us. It went from us to our, you know, our command ship there to a higher military authority there to the White House and um, we were dope. go and at that moment probably took I don't know a minute for that to happen I remember thinking uh, ear of like so doing a boarding even a training boarding can be pretty scary. you're on the sea at night it's a dangerous thing to do and we're climbing on whatever the we hook is what you're going to hang you and one other guy's weight on and that could be a rusty piece of crap that half you get halfway up and now you fall you know and it was a long climb it was a little over 40 feet so that's a pretty pretty daunting climb on a out of a pitching boat to a big steel ship that does not know you're coming and that you assume the worst right the people on there and um i remember you know you get the, that energy that nervous energy and then all of a sudden for the first time ever it went away and i remember thinking because before we left, we had seen how America in the world reacted to 9-11, right? And I remember thinking, man, there's probably not a man in the United States that wouldn't trade places with me right now if they had if they had the skill and the, and the strength to to do what what is about to get done. There's probably, you know, I'm right in a, there's only a handful of us and I get to be one of them. And there's all these dudes that if they could trade places with me, uh, everything being equal and do this, they would want to be here. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I remember thinking that I was really and go after and it ended up being a drill. but we had we had an incident on there where um, who figured out that we were boarding boarded that we'd started boarding. and from about 60 feet up on the superstructure and I threw a huge um really thick like big mason jar full of uh, freeze-dried coffee threw it down and it struck the uh, the lead climber that had climbed up with me hit him right on the edge of his plates and uh knocked him off his feet like i thought he got shot made a sound like you know a bullet makes when it hits your plates and his feet went up in the air like in the
2: movie Mm.
1: (laughs) right up the mass literally took him he, and I I go over to him and grab him, and he can't talk. The wind knocked out of him, just like when you fall out of a tree when you're a kid. He's got the wind knocked out of him, and I'm feeling under his armor, like thinking he got caught, and it's. And I remember grabbing him by the tail of his uh, because they then they turned some deck lights on to expose us. So I grabbed him by the tail of his body armor because he was having trouble up, and I hold him and but your senses, you know, are on overload when stuff like, that. and even though all of the physical stuff gave the, uh, the impression that he'd been shot in his, in his ass of coffee. And I'm, like I said, I'm a big coffee fiend so I could smell coffee, like really strong. And, I'm, and it didn't add up. When I got him into the the dark and he started catching his breath, I could see the parts of the broken jar in the, uh, light was glinting on it when they turned the light on and I could see that powdered coffee all over. And then it slowly dawned on, I was like, Oh, they just, they threw a giant jar down here. And if they'd hit him in the head, he probably would have killed him.
0: Mm. Damn. Well, and so how <laughs> the rest, how the rest of that mission go.
1: So we breached a lot of doors. We took the, took the ship, uh, personnel, um, we zip tied them up, sort them, Searched every square inch of that ship. We brought a Marine uh, boat company over. After we took control of the ship, we're steering it. We brought a uh, prize crew from the ship that we had launched from uh, to help manage the systems on the ship while we did the, uh, you know, the hostile clearing stuff, making sure there was no threat. And then we uh, we used this big uh, Marine boat company. These guys were great. When we would clear an area, we would drop them so that we had a cordon, so we didn't have to re-clear it. So as we were moving people that we would capture or whatever forth <clears throat> you'd have to gas yourself out re-clearing stuff, re-clearing stuff set up the security but yeah even even still that was 12 hour clearance before we called it here and um i challenge you sometime to put 65 pounds of uh armor and weapons and ammo on and go run steel steel ladders steel stairs for 12 hours and and see what you're,
0: the day after that. Yeah, I can't imagine that's a, that's a comfortable experience, but I mean, it sounds like it was, it was a wild experience, nonetheless, to be able to be a part of something like that, to do something like that. It sounds mm-hmm. like really, really, really cool. Um, Kind of fall. So then we did it. We did another one then. Okay. So, All right. Yeah. So what was that like?
1: Uh, The same and different. So what we learned from that was uh, bringing the, bringing the extra Marines over was very helpful because uh, we would have been even more exhausted if we reclear all those spaces and over again. Uh, but then we realized, like, we could actually even use more SEALs. So by then, our sister platoon had, they had been in Afghanistan, and then uh, they had been, whatever, pu- pushed out of country for some reason. They were, they were bummed. They were back on their aircraft carrier wishing they were in a fight. And uh, we said, hey, uh, we could use your help. So. So this next time a ship got targeted, uh, we pulled the package up, and then what we did was we used them as the helicopter assault force, and then we had helicopter snipers as well. And so they stayed on our uh, our AFSB, our, our float uh, forward staging that we were living on, and then we did the same thing. We, we rolled up on it from the boat assault force. Again, I was the second guy up the ladder we got on this time we got on the ship we got everybody from the boat assault for every guy on the ship very quickly and without being noticed and um because of how the other crew had reacted to us um you know hindsight being twenty twenty, i think we could have probably could have probably just gone in and grabbed the guy that was on the wheel of the ship and he would have it would have been quiet uh but because of the violent encounter we'd had with them throwing the thing down when we got me and the other guy crept up to the door, we were trying to figure out how to open the door to the bridge. Again, this is 2 o'clock in the morning. Somebody is on that bridge. We don't know how many, but there's at least somebody driving the ship. And I'm feeling for the door. open, And all of a sudden, I realized that the curtain, so the door is already been open. They have a black curtain hanging there. So my arm is actually reaching in the room. And this guy can't see it because it's dark in there. So um, my me and my the lead climber was a different lead climber at that time. We were splitting the door on our knees, and we, he looked. We looked at each other, and he was like, "It's open." Uh, I pulled out a flashbang, and our signal that I'm going to bang it, or do you want me to bang it? Is you you go like this with that flashbang and in your buddy's face, and if he doesn't want it, he'll shake his head. no. and when I did that, all I saw was white teeth. I was like, "That oh. sounds like well, yes." So pulled the uh, pin and lobbed this uh, flashbang in. And um, it was hilarious, actually. It's done out of a Roadrunner cartoon. So the flashbang goes up in the air. This guy's driving the ship and he's got a wheel and a console. that has all the instruments for the ship on it. And the flashbang goes up and and the striker pops eye level in front of him. And then, then explodes probably just on the other side of the console. night turns into day for about a nanosecond Mm. and this guy when we came in and and started clearing it he was the only guy up there so the whole thing filled with smoke for a hot second but then the wind kind of blew it through and this guy was doing like a pogo his his hands were still like he was holding onto the wheel but he wasn't on the wheel anymore he was kind of like steadily bouncing towards the opposite bridge wing door to get out of there and of course we cut him off and then grabbed him and and then everybody woke up on the ship and came running up because they heard an explosion on the bridge. It was actually kind of cool because they, most of them came up like a funnel right into where we were, and we would just grab them and sub ammunition. <clears throat> that ship was different. Um, the crew seemed like they were all Sudanese. They were all like seven feet tall, and um, a lot of them were. I think they were just scared. They didn't want to be compliant. Like all we wanted to do is get them like. Kind of jump in and search, but said that a lot of them decided to go in the rooms, and lock the door, and yeah. and they weren't realizing like, hey, these we're we're not going away. Um, not to, to be fair as well, and, and even on the first one, this is why it's dangerous to send a ship to do a Leo, Leo boarding. Period. Because you're a ship at sea, a merchant ship, and people just start coming over the side of your ship with guns, pirates. Mm-hmm. Pirates happen, you know, and you can defend yourself from pirates. So you're kind of putting guys in a, in a position where these commercial crews have every right to be terrified of you and fight fight back, you know. but so these guys, did, a lot of them hid in their rooms, locked the doors, and then we had to breach or go in and get them. And you know, by then the sun came up once we got everybody again and again dry hole. So two, you know. Dangerous in the sense that just being there and doing what we were doing, putting everybody in danger,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but well executed. Nobody got hurt. Hurt, you know. Even the guy, or guy that took the coffee jar, we made a we made a big uh, mock award, like the Royal Order of the of the Purple Coffee.
0: That's cool. Wow, Those are really really interesting stories. like it's crazy to kind of hear about these sort of. Um, I mean things that people really only get to see sort of in like Hollywood for example but mm-hmm. hear it from a first hand perspective of somebody that actually did it it's, it's very very interesting to hear about um a couple, uh, another story that or another area of conversation I kind of wanted to get into um was your combat operations uh, during your time in Iraq around 2004 uh both when you were uh, combat wounded in Iraq, uh, the medevac, surgeries, rehab, but also just some of the activities you did while you were there?
1: Well, what what got me there was that uh, the team that had the deployed to Iraq at the time, their mission changed, and they were directed to essentially be the, um, the for lack of a better term, the secret service or the top think initially it was four, then five, then six uh, interim Iraqi leaders, like the interim president and all of the the uh, guys below him, because they couldn't trust you know oh you're going to take the locals, and um, and it was one of those no fail missions. Like America would have looked horrible at that time if we couldn't put a a stabilizing government in, right? Or those guys were getting assassinated or whatever. So. It's one of those things that i was like t- i love teaching personal support details and security because it's fun driving cars hard and you know doing assaults and counter assaults um but i also at the same time was always like we're so overqualified for this or why do i have to be able to you know do a halo or hey ho parachute jump at night into the ocean or dive under a ship and put a bomb on it to walk next to this dirt that everybody Half the people in the world want dead mm-hmm. you know i can take a cop and them how to do that you know we, so i think we're really overqualified um which we were but that was the mission that we were given it's no-fail mission don't let's get hurt and so i came into the country thinking yeah i brought a team of guys from my team that had prior experience doing sniper things or assault things they were additive so they needed a few extra guys and um of course it never acts it never ends up like you think it's gonna you think you're gonna show up and they're gonna go, Hey, we're gonna put you in this uh salt element and that you know by midnight you'll be stacking on doors and you know, taking out bad guys. And instead it's like, hey, we have this giant fleet of vehicles that we need. We have like hundred and twenty vehicles that are used to support moving these six guys around and motor needs and everything else. And we need somebody to make sure that their maintenance is good, that the keys are always accessible, that they Hears aren't flat and, you know, not a sexy job for a seal. And that's I, my, I was a chief. So my senior chief got that job and he wasn't very happy at the time about it. And then my job was they need watchstanders. But so we had a big nerve center that tracked all of this activity. So typically during the daytime is when these dudes needed to be seen, right? So they're going from Baghdad to Mosul to be seen, you know, by the media and be seen by the people there. The, yeah, there's continuity of government. The government's functioning. We've got our guys locking a diamond around them, and how do you get them there? It's fly them. That's the safest. Okay, what are you going to drive when you're there? Well, we need these armored vehicles. Okay, I'm going to fly those things up there. So we were doing all the bullshit that Secret Service does whenever they move POTUS or you know around. We were doing that on the daily. So on during the day, those the operations were being conducted. during the evening, we were planning those operations. So, okay, we're going to need these many vehicles. Okay, we're gonna have, uh, Chinook is going to swing load this one, this one, and this one, and it'll be there, and then we'll bring them back this way. And so, again, not a sexy job, uh, job really. And my job was to be a, like a dock watch, but to be in there and just kind of manage the conduct of the jock, right? Not to be the guy to you know, bring a plan together, to be the guy making sure that the, uh, the uh, operation center functions in a way that the people that are putting pieces of it together do that adequately. And then we had monitors up that basically we had, you know, every news agency uh, back home had a screen for how things were being reported back there. We had, um, we had a big battle map that was integrated with all the different systems affected uh, mortar launches and rocket launches and things like that. So that when we were taking indirect fire, we could see where, um, and then we had, uh, and then when you were, when you were bored, you had we call it old TV or kill cam. So somewhere around Iraq, there would be some fleet of drones, some some uh, armed, some unarmed. And if you got bored, you'd be like, "Hey, let's see what's going on out in uh, Ramadi or something, and see what the drone is seeing." And you could see what the drone was seeing, and you would see some strange stuff. Hmm. Like what? You'd see Iraqis out in the dark having sex in the back of pickup trucks. You'd see, so a lot of the stuff when I mean, you'd see something wild, like whether a target was engaged or just something unnatural. Like people don't realize that they're being watched, having sex out in out in the middle of a field or something. You know, you could save those and then we'd keep them on a on a drive. So if you were bored, you'd be like, "Hey, anything funny happened on kill cam in the last you know twenty four hours?" And they'd be like, "Oh my God, there's a." there's a video of a guy screwing a goat you got to see it's in the such and such turn off they would be there so every every abomination that you've heard that that you know or rumors yeah there's actually evidence that that kind of stuff happened. Hmm. wow that's that's interesting <laughs> i suppose amusing uh bro- broke up the uh monotony a little bit and so you know, you know other interesting sidebars so we were work, we were working out of stage out of uh saddam hussein's wife's palace and uh and then we got to roam around in our free time to uh to shoot we had a to rain, shoot on and uh, test our weapons or zero stuff so, uh the lions the famous man-eating lions that Uday had were in in our compound in a cage so you know, you'd go down and do a photo op with them and uh you could go over to the cross swords and go check all that out. It's favorite place for people to get the pictures taken and stuff. But really, I got I, I uh I not enjoyed, but I found I found it intriguing to go through um uh, Saddam Hussein's wife's palace and then the neighboring, like Uday had a had a compound right next to it, and Kuse had one next to it. And when you go through when you went through them, most of them they were pretty much bombed out and hit they'd been struck by some heavy ordinance, right? But when you saw how thick laminate bulletproof glass was on their house, what struck me was people that aren't doing bad things don't have a need to put armor on their house. You know what I mean? It was like, and it, the place reeked of evil. And I, I know I'm not the first person to say that, but it really did. When you walked around at night, it had this, um, I don't know, man, it had this eerie vibe to it. Everything was marble. Everything was very opulent, even after we'd hit it with ordnance and stuff. And I would sometimes go find a working, you know, one of the big working showers and take my shower or inside the palace. But um, I found at night, they must have burned a crap load of incense in there over the years. Because it was like the scent of incense came out of the pores of whatever that was constructed out of at night when it was a little cooler You'd walk around you'd smell this incense smell that you didn't smell in the daytime. And it was, uh I don't know, it was really creepy. Hmm. But, but it's like you see, all the faucets where everything was plated in gold and gold and ivory and marble and all
0: the expensive stuff. It's the, t- the typical, like, douchebag dictator house package, basically?
1: Yeah, essentially,
0: yeah. Huh. Wow, that's yeah. something. That's incredible. Yeah. And what a, what a weird place to kind of be. And I know you kind of said, like, you know, you're not the first person to kind of say that like you just you could feel the evil there right but at the same time Mm -hmm. it it just like what was it like to sort of experience that firsthand after kind of hearing about all the things that had happened and you know obviously saddam is and his sons are sort of these boogeymen as it were and now again you're standing there in this place where so much of this evil happened or was committed
1: well that is that is it so they were boogeymen so Mm -hmm. there were no visible boogeymen to be seen they were out vanished like vapor right they were out there somewhere hiding um there were iraqis that were inside our compound that were allowed to be in there that <laughs> were setting up capitalist commerce right so little internet cafes or um what else uh you know selling treats or or photos or you know things that you could get anyway uh for free from our system but they let them uh they let them do that kind of stuff and um, And I got to talking with those people and and that's where I'm like, wow, these people are really nice people. Iraqi people were very nice people and it's a shame that our country did what we did to their country. Not discounting that Saddam Hussein was an evil person, but I don't know that us going in there and killing a crap load of Iraqi people, and some of them are are very evil and I'm I'm glad we did that. We killed far too many people that they weren't they were just there. And um I, I the first thing that I remember thinking, wow, the Iraqi people are actually pretty nice. I would talk to people that were my age. So I was in my 30s, I was in my mid-30s. When I would talk to men that were that old, and I'd ask them, what do you think should happen to Saddam? So Saddam was still hadn't been captured yet. Was, and uh they're well, maybe they had. Yeah, maybe they had. They hadn't killed him yet. And uh, so I would ask, what do you think should happen to Sanam? And they said, I think he should be, they'd say something horrible. He should be tied to a stake in public and, you know, shot with a machine gun or, you know, his head should be popped off or they come up with the kind of stuff that Sanam would do, right? And then I started to realize that the reason why they felt that way is because they're in their 30s and they had lived pure terror from this. Like any little, this guy was explaining to me one day, like I never would have known this if I hadn't talked to over and over again i said yeah he goes you couldn't if you were walking anywhere near the palace and you had colonna you could be imprisoned or or beaten or something because the the thinking was oh what you trying to show up saddam you're trying to smell better than saddam? and then apparently saddam's picture a picture of him would be on the cover of every newspaper today so if you want to read the newspaper and then you throw the newspaper away the secret police would grab you and go, oh, what well, are you disrespecting Saddam? You don't want to keep his papers? You don't like him? You don't, you. So it was like that. they were always on eggshells, you know? And uh, so they wanted, they wanted the violent thing. They wanted him to put to death. But interestingly, when I talked to the kids, the teenagers, I'd say, so what do you think should happen in Saddam? And to the person, they'd go, I think he should have to live his life in prison. Hmm. And I thought, is it was because they're being soft on him? You know, they didn't have the whatever uh temerity to, to, to kill him or something and I was like well what why is that he said I think that his should be his punishment he should have to see how good we're doing without him. life us prospering well hmm. and I thought wow and that's when I kind of thought well there is hope for this country because the 30 something year old people unfortunately that gener- generation needs to kind of eye off because' they're so bitter from the experience but the kids were very optimistic Mm -hmm. I thought well okay that's a that's a good time
0: for it yeah I guess like the teenagers had sort of been able to see the other side of things from like having the Americans in the country and and sort of see the other side of what's out there whereas the 30 year olds that was really their only concept of like justice and fairness and it was growing up in a horrible setting where Saddam was that was sort of what the standard was that was set for them growing up right yeah,
1: yeah, and I, that is, it's uh, its like we were talking about before, it's the, it's the context, right? So to me, my context is, I feel kind of bad for what our country did, how we left there I don't see what, uh, I don't see where the good was. On the other end, uh, I could ask, actually play devil's advocate from the other end and say, well, the older people may hate what we did to them, the older people may say, well, we never had this type of freedom all these tore yeah. our place up so I, I don't I don't know mm. I know they did appreciate that and, and they couldn't communicate with the outside world prior to that mm. so just having that remember how I was talking about how the uh, road going into Berlin that capitalism you know we're coming in you know you're going to be free you can do all this stuff commercial uh, same thing so all of a sudden somebody that couldn't even talk to the outside world can open their own internet cafe it might not be huge but it's there, and they can communicate to the outside world and they can do
0: that. What happened in Iraq when, um, I think, I think you may have touched on some of it before in in our previous episode, but there is, you know, mentioning about being combat wounded in Iraq, the medevac, the surgeries, the rehab. Can you kind of talk a little bit about sort of that maybe in, in some more detail, if you don't mind sharing or. Yeah. I mean, it's, it comes down to, I told you what
1: my, job was in a, in a chief and then you know you're always wishing for more so this is definitely one of those be careful what you ask for you just might get it mm-hmm. so we had a great um demanding officer we were working for and he had a you know we didn't have to bug him he just kind of knew like if uh there was an opportunity we wanted to get involved and uh i was a pretty seasoned sniper he knew that so it was my senior chief and uh we were doing our jobs without bitching too much you know and doing them proficiently, and just keeping our eyes and ears open. One day he uh, he was like, hey, pulled us aside, and he said, hey, they, um, we're taking, so what had been happening is we've been taking an increasing amount of uh, indirect fire, and the indirect fire was getting more accurate, which was producing, so, you know, it started, I think it was like a four night in a row thing. So one night we got one series of mortar rounds or rockets, and then nothing, and then the next night, we got two series it would happen and then there'd be an air gap and then it would happen again later and ultimately it built up to where it happened like four times in one night. And in one of those volleys, uh, the rounds that came in, came in damn accurate on one of the houses that, uh, we were protecting again, one of the interim Iraqi, uh, house. And while he wasn't hurt, uh, I think we had one of our guys wounded, but one of our interpreters or one of the Iraqis that we had on the team that worked on the company. And um, so we're like, hey, I don't know how they know. They know where he lives and they're dialing in and they're getting very accurate. And they were launching these uh, mortars. The rockets weren't accurate. They were just they got, uh, really weren't stabilized the way they were firing them. So they were more of a nuisance, a powerful nuisance, but a nuisance. But the mortar rounds were... They were accurate and they would launch them so fast that they couldn't back and hit anybody. So they said, Hey, here's what we're going to do. The, the uh, Iraqi national guard is going to go do this big sweep of the area where all of these launches are coming from an Eric. And uh, which is kind of infamous in U uh, S first cavalry history, because they took a lot of casualties and, um, they're going to go in with the first calf, And they're going to go in with the Iraqi National Guard. They're going to do this big scene. By the night, they're going to see the Bad guys. And uh, they asked if we wanted to go. And so said, okay. They said, we want you to do a sniper stay behind. So a sniper stay behind mission is when you go in with the big group so that you're blended in with the group. And then you set up a hide. And then when the group withdraws, you'd stay. And nobody can keep track of how many people were many. So now you're embedded there, and and you're overwatching area where you know the uh, the the uh, enemy has been launching from, and um and you, you take them out. And so uh, so that's what we did. So we snuck in. We took some Bradleys in. We went in with a there was a four seals, two two Marines from Marine Corps to come, that one, that One. Um, they were like head team guys, so they had the ability to intercept radio traffic that the enemy had, and then interpret it. They had the linguist skills; so they could us a heads up on what was going on. And then, uh, and then we had like a small squad of first cab, so some machine gunners and infantrymen, and they they were like our security while we we're in hide side. And then the plan it sounds pretty harebrained to tell you, but plan was somehow we had a source or a terp. That got us a source that, hey, um, we're going to pay a dude to lock you into the top floor of an eight story. building. And also, insurgents live in that building. Okay. And so the position we were going to be in would precisely overlook where we knew the launches were coming. from. But we are literally going to be in a building that was also occupied by no. And uh, so we said, okay. So our plan was we were going to ride in with the first calf in a series of uh, Bradley fighting vehicles. We are going to dismount, uh, patrol about a mile or so uh, through the infamous Grenade Alley. You can Google that. And um, we we're going to patrol into where these buildings were. There were two identical buildings at the at four-way intersection. At, at this four-way intersection at one corner was where these launches kept occurring. They knew that the somebody would drive up. They had they probably had some markers on the ground. They'd place the bait the base mortar and the legs and fire three rounds, get back in the front. So my position overlooked that on the eighth floor. But to get into that building, we patrolled up to the building that was next to it. And the buildings were separated by know, 10 or 15 feet air gap and they were identical eight-story buildings so we we got into with these <laughs> with these first cab guys we got into the one building and we and we patrolled right cleared up the stairs till we got to the roof and we got on the roof somehow we got a ladder up there and we took that ladder and stretched it out to go across this 80 foot down but maybe 15 feet wide gap and then we crawled on our stomachs on the ladder from one roof and dropped onto the other roof. So no one ever saw us come in that building. Can you imagine if that ladder broke? 80 foot fall on your face. (laughs) That's wild. So we uh, we occupied the roof at night and um, we did overwatch while these guys were doing their thing. And then we, we stayed up there until the sun came. And when the sun came up, we started realizing that people were people below us slept on the roofs at night because it was cool. And as they started waking up and looking up, they're seeing us on the roof above them. So they're all jib jabbering, you know, and these were young kids. What we didn't realize was, no, those were the enemy. So what we would assess, you know, in the United States is that's a kid. They were some of the part of the fighting force. Um, they're just a lot younger, and they're managed by adults. So the word apparently started to spread that, hey, there were I buildings. So then we, uh, I remember at some point a grenade went off, and it was like, it was like the walls had arms. Like nobody saw where the grenade came from. It's just some soldiers were walking by, and a, and a grenade just materialized from nowhere, and nobody could ever figure out where it came from. It creepy. And, uh, fortunately nobody was hurt real bad on that, but it was already giving you a a ominous sense of what was up. So we ended up, uh, sealing ourselves up inside this eighth floor building and somewhere a bunch of weird things started happening. so I noticed, um, what did I notice first? I noticed this, uh, dude walking down the street towards us from the river. And, um, He just had this cocky walk about him. And he also had one of those Arab headdress scarves wrapped around his neck, but it was the first one I'd seen. Like most people don't normally wear that. Not like in uh, Saudi Arabia. So I was was like, that's interesting. That's the first one of those I've seen. And he's got it kind of around his neck and he's just drifting towards us real cocky. Then all of a sudden, all these kids come out of this area and marry up on him. He looks like the Pied Piper of kids. And I say kids, I'm talking like, I don't know, 12 to 15 year old, and they're just all he's got like this group of 20 kids around him, and I'm thinking, who the heck is this guy, the Candy Man? Because he he comes, you know, dangling down the road, and all of a sudden he picks up all his kids, and he walks over towards us, and then I then the most surprising thing happened, I see a car pull up right below us. When I look down at the driver, he looks like me. He he's got, you know, reddish hair, beard, facial hair. He's white guy, stocky dude. And he's sitting there cool as a cucumber with these shades on. And I'm like, holy oh, geez, man, I just I think this one of those foreign fighters. And just then, all of those kids go and swarm his car. And one of the kids takes a gun and screws it up to this dude's head and starts screaming at him like he's gonna shoot him. So I'm thinking this kid is about to pop this guy and this dude was as cool as anything didn't get it didn't freak out didn't yell nothing just sat there and then eventually he hands a box from his front seat to the kids and the guy and then i see them take the box over to the gutter the edge of the street and there's a, a wire there that i hadn't seen they wire it in and when they walk away from it it blends in like trash and I'm like, holy jeez, I think I just saw him deliver a bomb. And this dude, the catching-looking dude drives off. So all these kids are, and one of them has an AK with the stock off. The butt stock is off. All these kids are around, and here's the dude that uh, that delivered it, the Pied Piper guy in the mix down there, less than 100 yards from us, eight stories down. And uh, just then a Humvee, an American Humvee all by itself, just comes out of nowhere our blind spot, comes down the street and there's a big explosion. Boom! They cracked off the IED. So we can't see what happened because now it's out of our sight on the other side. So I don't know if the Humvee's upside down this will turn in or, or if it was ineffective. We don't know, but we haul it in. Everybody's, you know, everybody's had their brain rattled from this explosion. And my guys are yelling, what was that? Said, they just delivered a bomb. They just set it off. It was on a Humvee. I don't know what happened. We need to check and make sure there's no American turk. And uh, at that moment, I saw the guy that had delivered the the uh, bomb and that check guy was still in the area. And I came out of the of the uh, window on the balcony, had my sniper rifle, and I was getting ready to shoot him. And uh, my buddy walks in the room from, from his position. He sees me getting ready to go hot. He's like, what? what are you doing? And I'm like, once I do it, we're all in it. So I sucked back in the window, and I and I go, hey, here's what happened. This guy came by. He sold a bomb to this guy. The guy set it up, and then he blew it up on a Humvee. That's what the explosion was. It was an American car. I don't know what, what happened. And he goes, okay, okay. I understand now. He goes, it, it doesn't matter. They're gone now. They just are gone. And so we were frustrated. And nobody had seen me because nobody looks up when all that activity happens down there. So I, I closed the, the windows, and I was back inside. And my buddy goes, all right, he was, he was a really good, calm guy. He goes, you know what, let's recenter ourselves. Let's all go back to our positions or taking a fresh look at our area. He goes, we're going to be here all day, you know, maybe two days. So let's just take a relook at everything, take a breather, get an assessment of, you know, the activity level. And I'm like, all right. He had no sooner gone back into his room on the backside of the building that overlooked an alley. And he said, actually, a, a junction of two alleys. And he says, Dave, come in here. So I come in there and he goes, dude, he goes, look straight down below us. You're not gonna believe this. I look down and there's five pickup trucks directly below us in the alley. And the beds of all the pickup trucks are completely full of RPGs. And there's 15 dudes we counted all dressed in black, black masks on, which is indicative of like the Medi militia or whatever. And they're all milling around these vehicles right below us, and they have no idea we're above. And I was like, Holy geez, I said, What do you they're up to no good with all those RPGs? You know, yeah, all it in with call the QRF, tell them that we're gonna ambush these, these guys out. So we tell this army lieutenant, we go, Hey, get on the horn and tell them to launch the QRF because we're about to be in a point and uh, that we're about to initiate this contact. And then we uh, came back in and we said, "Hey, have anybody here with a machine gun or a sniper rifle and every single grenade that we have, bring them up to the roof." So I left my sniper rifle in the hide site so I could bring my lighter gun, my parky you know. And um, we all go up to the roof and we set up crisscross fire from the corners of the building down on the on the uh, alley where these guys were. They still have no idea we're above them. And I took the side. Me and uh, my buddy took two teams and we climbed up on the elevator cap, which is the highest, highest point of the. World. And um, we're up there getting ready to initiate this contact. And we're exposed. So anybody that's in the city, these high rises around us, somebody eventually is going to see us. And um, then this army lieutenant runs up and he says, hey, they said, don't don't shoot these guys. Just let them go and and we'll we'll figure out what to do with them later. We're like, well, it's a little too late. We've just unbuttoned our We're exposed up here. Um, we didn't tell you to ask their ask them what to do. We said, well, it's a QRF. We're getting ready to hit these guys. And so now you can't, you can't act like you didn't hear that, but that is not how we wanted that to be executed. And just then, just about then, there was a tremendous explosion about, a, about 200 yards away from us. VBIED drove right into the front of a Iraqi police, rocked the whole city, rocked us. We were just like, wow, huge plume of smoke, uh, you know, hot metal whizzing by. And then uh, we look and we see the guys that were the insurgents. Somebody drove the VBIED into the building and then these guys were going into the rubble. I thought everybody's dead in there. And uh, nope, we Iraqi policemen that were still alive. They were pulling these guys out of the rubble and then lining them up shoulder shoulder in the street. And after they did about three or four guys like that, I went, you know what? They're gonna they're gonna kill those guys. But I'm not gonna stand here and watch these guys get hot. And My buddy was like, No, I'm not either. He's like, What do you think? And so there was a private from the first cab next to me who had an M203 on his team. And I said, Hey, do you do you actually know how to shoot that thing? And he's like, Yeah. I said, you know what it's dialed in for? He goes, Two hundred yards. Like, All right. When I say so, start lobbing. Eggs over there <clears throat> where you see them doing that to the cops. I figured that would bust it up. Okay. And just before we could execute that, uh a bunch of gunfire, well, a couple of shots came in about six feet over our heads. <clears throat> so we didn't know if that was directed at us or what, but you could hear AK round two go overhead. So I had just turned to my buddy, the senior chief. And I'm like, hey, you think that's for us and he goes uh, well no soon enough and no sooner did he say that a flurry of gunfire came in on on both of us and did like in uh, basically shot everything but us it was going between our our you know armpits between our legs between the two of us so close to your head that you could feel the sonic wave in your in the bone of your head same thing in your long bones of your arms and legs and i just knew we were about to die but he's like he rolls over the top of the elevator camp because i'm fighting this way you take that side i said all right so it was on so he's fighting what he just got on the other edge and again those dudes directly below us have no idea that we're there he just starts raining grenades on these guys and then the machine guns that we put open up and they're just boom 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 all these explosions secondary explosions from all the rpds the vehicles start burning next to the building and uh, these guys tried to escape up the alley. And that was perfect for my uh, teammate to just stack them up as they were up that alley. On our side, I hear the guys calling out. Nobody, nobody on, our, on my side of the building is shooting. And we we're taking a ton of fire. And I'm like, why is nobody shooting? And, and then somebody says, there's, uh, there's four guys down there with RPGs. And this is within 100 yards. So I'm like, holy crap. You know, why wouldn't you shoot them? So I'm like, point them out, tell me where they're at. And um, all of a sudden um, I'm shouting at this this guy, this Marine who's next to me and there's AK rounds just snapping between our face. And I look down and I see this person with the chop stock AK firing at me from behind hard cover. And um, I, uh, I fired around because my dot, my sight, he was so close and he was showing so little of his face that it like covered his whole. He's was like 100 meters away, 80 down, eighty feet down, and only showing like his eye behind cover, but sh- shooting pretty effectively. So I I fired around and ricocheted right into his face. Knew it would either uh, kill him or wound him, and it made him run. When he sprinted, then we got a better view of him, and, and we all fired on him. And that, so that got everybody out of the, uh, you know, by the shooting thing. And once we uh, burned him down, we saw somebody take off with an rpg on their shoulder and so we tracked that person i tracked them until they found some cover and it was uh what was concealment it wasn't covered they got in a bush but they didn't have a bush behind them so i could kind of see their silhouette and that person was really dangerous because then they had a they had the best view of where we were and if they did one more leap they would be in hard cover all the way back up to our position they could go tell anybody hey there's just many of them around on this building so I engaged that target, and I'm uh, pretty sure I put that target down because never never saw never saw uh, any movement out of there again and And right about that time, uh I real there was this slight lull. you have all that fire coming in from one direction so intensely. there was all of a sudden a little bit of a lull, so it went to like the little pop pop, not not just a roar. And then all of a sudden I sensed it I was like, they're moving. Now they know where we are. And you could tell that what they were doing was they were flanking and, and elevating. So the next fire that came was going to decimate us be firing down on us. And, um, my buddy, I said, Hey, they're moving, moving on us. We need to get inside. We need to button up. He goes, he goes, I agree. He goes, you take your guys and go first. He goes, I'm I'm beating these guys up here. I'll come last. So I said, all right. And just as I turned my head, I saw a Russian hand grenade, In the air, arcing on a trajectory to land on, coming from the adjacent rooftop, and the, I could actually see the spoon about six feet apart from it, and it was coming over. And it, apparently, that young private had taken his eyes off the rooftop. That was his role. Was and then insurgent the had popped up and perfectly threw a grenade that was going to land right in the middle of us. So I yelled "grenade!" um and everybody skedaddled. Everybody tried to get off that platform so a couple guys one guy froze on the ladder a couple of guys uh were able to roll off the top and i made a run for it because the thing the grenade was actually gonna hit at about two seconds i ran to the edge and when i got there i looked down and i saw there was a guy on the ladder so i just jumped over him and i tried to do like a parachute landing fall when i fell the eight or ten feet or whatever it was to the rooftop and when i hit I heard like two explosions one behind the other. So one was like everything in my knee letting go and my head hitting the roof and in my bell. The other was the grenade going off. And when the grenade went off, it blew the grating that we had just been on down. It blew all the grating down. There was a huge black cloud of smoke and then I all I heard was screaming. And uh, I figured it was such a well thrown grenade. I thought, man, there's a bullet. I I went to stand up, and my leg buckled. My right knee buckled completely at the knee and made an L shape, right. And I saw my disfigured leg turn out like an L, and I grabbed it and like snapped it back into place. And like I was in denial, like you can just you know, like a uh, a child's doll and uh i could hear it screaming up there and i knew somebody was hurt and so i got up again stood up and tried to make my way to the ladder this time my knee buckled uh towards me so it basically went exactly the wrong direction towards my chest at the knee it bent completely and i fell on my stomach and that's when i really felt horrible and i was looking at the bottom of my uh, hiking boot directly under my chin and then i no denying that thousand shape then so i straightened my leg out again and about that time i see my buddy's face over and he's like are you all right and i just said something like hey i busted my leg you know under understatement of the century and he's like hey we got a casualty up here um we're gonna send him down let's get i said okay i said hey and i could see that they were lowering that private down so his right foot was completely blown off his um his he had a, a severed uh, brachial artery, a lot of meat blown out of his right side here. Basically, where his, his uh, body armor was, he was protected. All of the exposed flesh really got mutilated, or just. And so they they lifted him down. And it was taken. Uh, it was taken like four guys to drag him in, which were guns offline. And so uh, somebody came to help me, and I was like, "No, nah, nah, just shoot, I'll I'll uh, I'll crawl down there." I got in this guy had a leaving a big wide blood trail like and so I used it like a I got on my stomach I pulled myself through his blood all the way to the door to go downstairs bounced myself down the stairs to the that next floor was the eighth floor where we were and I put my back to the to a corner by the elevator bank and uh put my gun on the stairs that led up to us from low because I couldn't walk but I mean I could cover that and so uh Everybody made it down inside, and then they just poured lead on the, the eighth floor from all directions. And so everything, uh tons of AK fire. And it was really surreal that um, they put bars on windows on the eighth floor over there, you know, like you would put on your ground floor to keep mm-hmm. people breaking in. They had bars on windows on the eighth floor. and I remember thinking, who does that? And the reason I knew is because all the bullets that were coming in would strike these bars from time to time and make these big sparks and then make the bullets ricochet. The AK rounds were ricocheting everywhere in the room. And at one point, I looked at this guy. We had this interpreter with us. He was terrified. He He was smoking a cigarette that had an ash on it as long as a man's finger just dangling in a big curl, unbroken his hands shaking like crazy I mean, he's got this long ash and it's just a weird thing to remember. And he, he begged me, you got to move. You're going to, cause he's from his perspective, he can see everything's getting shot around. I'm like, but I can't, somebody has to hold on the stairs, you know? And uh, so then the RPGs started raining in. So they, they were trying to get RPGs through the window on the eighth floor and <clears throat> they were hitting all around and I could feel the thumps on the wall, you know, so that some, some uh, would go a little low, some were pretty much right on, but on the, on the opposite end of the wall. And thank God they never got one through a window or floor, but they did get one through a window on the floor below us. And I remember this RPD came streaking directly below, basically blew up about where I was sitting, you know, just below me. And the dust and overpressure from that uh, was pretty intense. And the smell, I'll never forget the smell of r- exploding RPD RPDs and their propellant. Um, was just embedded in there. Well, also, we still had five pickup trucks right next to our building on fire. Fire rubber and all that's burning, and the uh, the RPGs are cooking off. And so it's just explosion after explosion. And the the whole building started filling with black smoke. We started getting asphyxiated. So we're like, dude, we're going to freaking die. We're on the eighth floor. I can't imagine how bad it is you know, down below. So it took the QRF about two two and a half hours to get to our position. So they came in with two M113 um, armored personnel carriers and uh, and a couple of strikers and no Bradley fighting vehicles. Not Bradley, Bradley fighting vehicles. And we knew when they arrived because we could hear the, the Bradleys going hot with their chain guns, just. And uh, a squad came out, cleared up the steps, eight stories, to make contact with us. And they got some guys together to carry the wounded dude that we'd, uh, we'd hit him with morphine. He was still, he was in a lot of pain. And uh, we'd applied tourniquets. And then uh, a guy got on my armpit and I held onto the railing and a dude cleared in front of me and we went down eight floors like that with my right leg just hanging by the the skin bumping along and in a tremendous pain and uh we got to the we got to the uh lobby and that's when i realized this massive explosion that we had heard sometime during the fight must have been another vbid or something like it the lobby was just blown out there was glass and bent metal everywhere like they had put a massive explosive and at some point somebody sent that tried to send an elevator to our floor and I don't know how we stopped it. Somebody dashed down and, and got it to stop it. it. was like archaic. Like they're going to put a bomb on the elevator and send it up to the top floor and blow the whole top floor. So when we got to the lobby, we saw there was about a, whoosh, it was a long way as a good 50 to 75 yards or so maybe to get out where the APCs were. And it was like watching a big puddle in the rain. It was just everywhere. And, and, um, So another guy got under my other armpit and, uh, brave dudes. These were just first cab guys. And, uh, I just looked at him. I was like, okay, really do the three legged race. They're like, yeah. And I said, look, man, I promise you, I won't hold anything back. I'll give everything I've got. They're like, okay. I even took my, uh, my gun off my rifle and handed it to one of the other dudes. And, um, we went for it did the three legged race from hell with my leg just getting kicked and flopping and, Doing helicopter spins, we made it without getting shot somehow to the ramp of the 113. Mm. We were exhausted, and uh I called up inside, and you, all you could hear was ping, 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 ping off the armor. And then they brought the the kid that was uh I don't know if he went before me or after, but we were both in the 113 at that point. The other guys got in, and then um <clears throat> they were having some trouble. Because we're all piled in on top of each other, getting an IV going on this on this private. So, um, it, my leg was all bent, all goofy, and you know we're all in there, and I am completely covered in this kid's blood. So I nobody knows, you know, I probably worse than than I was. Um, so I helped them un unscrew the uh, the IV and get the IV started on this this guy, and we and we drive out of there. So we literally drive until you can't hear ping, 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 no more bullets hitting the outside. And they drove us right into the camp, right into the combat surgical hospital in Baghdad. And, um, everybody rushes out, everybody rushes out. <clears throat> they grabbed the, the kid missing the foot him on the gurney. And then there, you could tell the people that were waiting for us were like, we were told there were two and they see me hopping on one leg. <laughs> and they're like, where's your injury? You know, I'm covered in blood, but they couldn't tell where the actual injury was. And, uh, just then my toe of my bad leg caught the ramp of the, uh, of the the hinge of the, of the ramp and my leg did this grotesque non-natural movement, you know, like totally bent the wrong way. And they're like, Oh, got it. So they throw me on one of those gurneys and my leg is hanging at a hot angle off of it. Like a mannequin, And they roll me into the uh, cache and uh,
0: triage. Wow. I, I don't know what to say to a story like that, man. That's unbelievable. That's so what, you know, when you have that sort of injury yourself, I mean, obviously you're in this prolonged firefight. There's other people that are injured mm-hmm. and, and, in, and in bad shape as well too. Um, I don't like with with regards to like a, a quick reaction force, is that a typical response time for them in that sort of circumstance? Or like two and a half hours under those conditions doesn't feel very quick, but I also understand that, um, you know, Things well, I didn't get to
1: stay. Yeah, I didn't get to stay in Baghdad to to uh, quiz uh the uh, decision makers and find out. You know, I mean I talked to my buddy afterwards when he got back. Um <clears throat> I think that I think what happened is nobody was really prepared for how bad the resistance was on there. I think we were the first eyes um from our side of things to really see this. There's there's really quite a lot of bad people. There were a lot of foreign fighters there that we weren't aware of. And the way we were able to tell is after the fight um our our local uh interpreters a, there were like um they estimated me we, we think we killed fifteen and there were like twelve twelve of them I think were foreign fighters and the reason why is because the the locals wouldn't pick up dead foreign fighters so they would only pick up people that they knew and give them the Muslim burial and then the rest they left out there like a dead animal to molder and um so that was one of the ways they could tell, wow, those guys probably aren't from here.
0: Hmm. So, what was your, like, what, what kind of recovery process is there like after you get an injury like that? Like, how?
1: Well, it was weird because everybody could, if you could see how it moved, you knew it was severely damaged. And I could feel in the fight that I was bleeding a lot internally, but it wasn't, again, I'm covered in this other dude's blood and I didn't tear my pants open to see if it was an open or closed wound. And I wouldn't have anyway, because under the those dirty circumstances you you want, if it's an open like compound fracture, you want clothes to stay over it. So I had no idea until they cut my pants off that it was a closed wound, but I could tell I was bleeding a lot because I was really thirsty and I was monitoring my, my heart rate and stuff. And that kind of was borne out because <laughs> within a day, my right foot blew up the size and shape of a football. I mean, you couldn't even count my toes. And then eventually it turned black while I was traveling back to the from all the blood pooling, you know, from all the vascular damage. So um, the thing is, you know, in the cash it was again, it's surreal because you go from this desperate situation, and then you feel okay. I know him. I know him in kind of a bad way. but You're still kind of in denial. Like, eh, maybe, uh, maybe they can do a magic, and I get to stay here and go back to my job. And there, you know, it takes a while for them to go, no man, you're going you're going to land stool. You're flying out of here on a jet. Uh, we just got a helicopter you'd where the jet is. And so you're trying to get your mind around that. And then I go, okay, well, maybe they'll fix it odd, a lot, and then I can come back. And so you're you're doing this bargaining thing with each other, but it's very surreal. So they cut my pants off because they have to, and um, and SEALs don't wear underwear. So now I'm sitting there bottomless, right? With <laughs> Basically, I, I don't know if they, I think they cut my boots off too, but I'm sitting here basically bottomless and in there, and you don't have a, you don't think about like in embarrassed or anything um, And there were so many people in there that were way worse than I was. I saw guys, cause this was a, that day, August 12th of 2004, there, were a, there was a lot of combat around the country. And there were people in there that I could tell must have lost their eyes because they had the big eye patches over them and there were um there was a <clears throat> really well loved um special forces uh uh captain named uh Michael Tarlovsky, who was killed and uh, he was literally on the other side of a sheet, so they had the triage set in like three sections separated by curtains and he he was on the other side of the one that I was in. And I could tell something happened because I saw a bunch of fifth group guys crying out in the hallway. And I asked got their attention and they uh, had been knocked the head and died. So it's a weird experience because you worry about yourself until you see people that are so much worse off or dead. And then you then you just go, hey, I'm, I'm lucky. And I fought to get a cup of coffee. While I was in there bottomless, covered in this other dude's blood, I insisted on somebody getting me a cup of coffee. And the doctor told me in no way was that possible. Unfortunately for me, there was another SEAL from our unit who was a uh, corpsman, and he was volunteering to work in the in the uh, cash, in the ER to get more trauma experience. And he recognized me and he's like, dude, he came and he looked at my chart and looked at everything. You know, Is there anything I can do for you? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Besides finding me some shorts, um, could you get a cup of coffee? And that dude went and argued, so he pled my case successfully. And that mean I not one two cups of coffee. It made me uh, temporarily feel better.
0: That's awesome. That's really good. So what was your, like, rehab like then? Like, I imagine that must have been a challenging exercise in itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it was. So I ended up, um, I got packaged for uh, being flown to uh, Germany in Balad, then I was put on a 141. Again, another humbling experience. because so many there were people that were expected on that flight, which means they expect to die during the flight. And uh, it's just it's like being in this flying tube tomb, and they've got all these ICU type people on there, and they're they're treating these people, and you're just thinking, yeah, I'm not in a good situation, but I'm not in their situation. So when we got to um, when we got to handstool day the doctor there was a, like a contracted doctor and he was very dismissive and he was well we're just gonna we're just gonna do surgery and you need to sign this thing and I said, so well, what's the thing saying well, it just says that we uh while you're under general anesthesia we can either amputate your leg fix it if it can be fixed or we can fuse it so it just doesn't end at the knee anymore and we'll make all those decisions while you're out and i'm like no you won't and i you was know, an older guy that was 36 years old and so I was—I uh, didn't just take what people told me. So I said, "No, I don't think so." <clears throat> he goes, "Well, I gotta bend your leg to see how bad it is." I said, "Why can't you just take an X-ray?" "Nah, we're not gonna. Be, I want to bend it." And I hadn't had any painkillers, nothing. And I was like, "Dude," I said, "If you come close enough to reach my leg, I'm close enough to reach you." And I knew how bad it hurt when I did. And I was just like, "No." You, you touch my leg and try to bend it and the fight on. <clears throat> so the guy was basically like, okay. And I was like, okay, like that. So you're gonna do an X-ray or an MRI? He's like, no. He goes, here's what's gonna happen. He's he's like, um I'm gonna I'm gonna downgrade your priority. And he goes, one way or the other, we're gonna have our way with that leg. Because you're gonna get sicker and sicker because you have a bunch of in there. You're not gonna get better. And eventually Basically telling me that I'll be too weak. Of it. And he's just gonna let me that conclusion. Well, that's not what happened. So that's when I realized, ooh, I don't have an advocate here in this. So um fortunately they had um uh, they had let me call my wife while I was in Baghdad and let her know basically what the basics were and uh the basics of what we were to do so she could prepare herself and then and, Got a hold of me. So my people were tracking me. And uh they we had a unit in Stuttgart, Germany, and the physician's assistant there, a guy named Um Craig Knott, fantastic He he'd never even met me and he he took my case like his life. And so he started talking to the doctors at the hospital there, talking to the doctors at the hospital in Virginia Beach. And he put the word out in the unit and said, Hey, does anybody know Dave And one of my former teammates, uh, was then stationed there and he was actually on leave. And he goes, yeah, I know him. Why? What's up? and they told him, Hey, he's, he's got some bad leg problems. He might lose his leg. He's up in, um, uh, landstool. We want somebody to go up there and sit on him make sure that he's okay. And so this, uh, this former teammate of mine canceled his leave, drew a vehicle, drove a couple hours up to landstool, I mean to my, my room where they had me and, uh, did just that, took care of me. And it was surreal. It's because they hadn't checked my leg. They just put it in like a big immobilizing brace. Bend, And I'm wearing uh, black running shorts was all my guys could find and bring me. And so now I'm in, I went from 120 degree heat and I'm on a cobblestone heat. He, my buddy took me out in town and I'm on a cobblestone street in, in uh, Landstuhl, Germany on crutches that I'm not familiar with because, you know, you know how you're wobbly the first time you get on crutches. And I'm going over these cobblestone streets and we actually went into a pub and drank beer because I still hadn't had any, hadn't had any dope for painkiller or anything. And, uh, so we drank, we drank beers out in town and then we ran into another seal friend of mine who's out there and, uh, you know, filled him in on what was going on. So the three of us had beer and I celebrated the fact that I'm here drinking beer, and the guys that were fighting us are dead in the streets of Baghdad. And uh, one of the weirdest things that happened was the next day, I realized how disgusting it was, but I was just covered in filth. And uh, I st- I didn't shower before I went out in town or anything. And so I was like, I need to get in the shower, but there was no one there to help me. I did, I did not want to fall in the shower on that leg that way. So I was really nervous about that. So I was taking my time getting in the shower and uh, I finally got myself braced up and I just let the hot water go and I'm just letting it go, let it go, let it go. And in the middle of all that, all of a sudden it felt like my palate, like roof and back of my throat felt like it fell out of my head and started gagging me. And I I started choking and I, I had this horrible taste. I'd never tasted anything like this before. And I I spit, and it looked like half a hockey puck. Black, like, rubber came out of my... It was all impacted in my sinuses from breathing all that smoke from the car fire and burning dudes. I had, like, burning dude goo and fucking tire rubber in my sinuses for a couple of days until the hot water broke it all up. And it it was, like, hard on on the floor of the... uh, Hour. and that was a little private experience. Like that was one of those things. If a team guy had been around, i been like, "Hey, you got to see this." But um, yeah, so eventually, they uh, what they did is they they uh, made a strong case to the commanding officer of the hospital that I should return to the United States for my treatment instead of staying there because they didn't, they kind of lost trust with that doctor, and uh, she was actually pretty famous. In the first Gulf War, she was a, a flight surgeon that had been shot down on a <clears throat> down-pilot rescue mission. Helicopter had been shot down. Both her arms were broken, and she was DOW. It was um, at the time she was a Colonel uh, Rhonda Cornum, and she actually uh, must have a soft spot for special operations guys. So our guys were like, "Hey, can you just let us sign for him, and we'll, we'll get him home?" And she was like, "Well, we can do the surgery here. You know, we do that. We're we're a surgical hospital and stuff." Like, yeah, but. Well, there was this uh, there was this uh, thing that the Bush administration had put in that, where they didn't want any disfigured soldiers uh, traveling commercially. They didn't want the public. Well, you know, I would, but there's that thing, and so our guys, I guess, said something like, "Well, have you seen Chief Hall?" She's like, "No, I haven't had the pleasure." It's like, "Well, maybe poke in because it's just his leg, and we're gonna put a brace." so I don't want anybody to know that you know he didn't have a skiing accident he, and actually he doesn't even look like he's in the military and so she i guess she came by and poked her head in and was like okay signed off on it i never met her but she signed off on it and my buddy drove me down to Stuttgart, and again i still had not had any painkillers. so i get to Stuttgart and i'm miserable the pressure from the um, blood leaking into my foot is just getting huge and um and they, they had filled the refrigerator in my room with so much beer to like, hey, you're here, you're amongst friends. you again drank beer to take the ad. literally that next day. One of the support staff at the unit hand- picked me up like a baby and carried me that he was the uh, admin chief and carried me on a United Airlines plane and put me in a, in a commercial seat. And uh, I had to change planes by myself in Atlanta and arrive late at night in Norfolk to find my wife in a. Corman from the team waiting for me. The next day, I got looked at by the surgeon that that PA had set up for me. Uh, that guy, Doc, uh, is a saint. Um, he had no idea how bad my leg was. Um, but he looked at my leg that day, gave me my first painkiller, morphine, which is when we found out I'm allergic to morphine. I, I turn into quite an animal when I'm very, very real at Tracy's I'm very rude to everybody around me when I'm on morphine. So not a not a happy buzz morphine. And then uh yeah, then the next day uh he took me in the surgery. And I remember how surreal when they put you, they give you a little bit of sedation before they wheel you into the OR. <clears throat> and I think this whole time I was in some sort of denial, like, this won't be that bad. As they uh they had sedated me, so I was pretty loose, but I was conscious. I can remember they're wheeling me into the OR. And I all of a sudden, as they're going over whatever little bumps, I feel all the torn up stuff in my leg grinding together. The only thing it was like a box of broken china. And that's when I was fully aware. I'm like, yeah, I, I need intervention. This is this isn't going to fix itself. Time isn't going to heal this. This go you know, cut me open and, go and do. And he did. So I had, ended up having two surgeries. Three or so overall, um, but the first one was to do the major carpentry out that was never going to be right again and so it could be reattached. And then um, opted uh, under the doctor's uh, suggestion to get a, what's called an allograft, so ever tissue. So I have a I have some dead guy's uh, Achilles tendon doubled over, functioning as my ACL.
2: Hmm.
0: Wow. And how has your front leg functionality been since? I know I've seen on your Instagram videos that you going on, on hikes and things like that and walking the dog. Yeah, and... I mean, I'm
1: yeah, it's I've gotten away with I've gotten away with a lot. Yeah, you know, I went back went back on deployment and you know fought in Afghanistan the year after, less than a year after they reattached it. Um I've gotten to do a whole lot, so I can't can't complain as far as that goes. Um on the other hand, I bear the book. with that is that I have a lot of pain pain isn't uh predictable so i'll go through periods of time where um maybe a week i'll be really really sick to my stomach and my leg and there's not much i can do and it's unpredictable so i, and I slightly like i can say oh it's because the pain or oh because i went for a short little daunt heart it's very hard so it's the unpredictableness and the severity when it does come but other and i have a lot of vascular if you look at it it's pretty ugly like bruising and pitting edema and all that sort of stuff but at the end of the day it's still my it's still my leg and i'm i'm able to get around you know and there's a, take myself back to the dash and those all those people that were so torn up or killed and i'm not
0: them so we're mm-hmm. fortunate wow yeah no that's an incredible story and thank you so much for sharing it it's un- unreal to hear sort of those sorts of experiences firsthand and to the level of description that you put into it to really kind of tell the whole story in a full Frank and full, um, kind of way I think is, is it's tremendous. So thank you so much. Um, you know, Dave, it's been, it's been a long episode and we've gone over a lot. We've gone over a lot of different Uh topics. Um, I don't know if this is a short story. If if, if it's, if it is, then I think we should try and squeeze it in just as sort of a, a bonus, not to leave on, uh, just to leave on a different note than that very intense story you just told um there was let's, let's save the
1: i'll save the story about time for for another thing that relates to time sure and and uh and it's and that one's a little um it's not sad or intense but it's it's uh it's a little more serious but i'll tell you, you know how I told you i could uh if i space i'd i'll never forget it but I have trouble having instant recall. So during uh, we had a big winter storm here, which was very rare in uh, a few years back, and uh, I decided I was going to venture out, go get our mail at the post office box, and then stop by a Starbucks and and get some foo foo, you know, Christmas drinks for for the wife and I. I'm in line and I see this dude, and he tur- and my wife and I had been watching this series called Patriot on um, it's on Amazon, and uh, and it's a very dark uh, humor comedy, hilarious. Uh, like the intelligence community. We'd been doing it since long. So we were kind of in the middle of that. So we're sitting, there, I'm standing in line and this guy is in front of me. He turns and looks at me and I have instant recognition. I'm like, I know this guy. And what he sees in me is that, okay, you recognize me. So he does that pause, like he's waiting for me to say hi, so-and-so. Only I don't, I don't know where I remember seeing him from. <laughs> so he kind of waits for a hot second, like, okay, we're going to do this. And then he, all right. Walks down to the end where you wait for your your coffee to come up. In the meantime, I'm over there just killing myself in my mental roller desk. Hey, the guy. No, was the army guy.
2: Oh, dude. Mm-hmm.
1: Can't come up with it. And he sees me struggling. And I look at him again. And he gives me that other look, like last chance. And I, nothing. And he walks out. And I'm like, dang, man, this is going to bother me all day. And just then I hear the barista say to the other barista, hey, did you recognize that guy? That's Terry O'Quinn, you know, from the, the show Lost. And, uh, and blah, 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 all these movies. And then I realized, oh, that's one of the main characters in the series we've been watching. <laughs>
0: that's really cool. Is there over, at, like, in the Virginia Beach kind of area, is there a lot of, like, is that a, a, a big area for a lot of, like, famous people, celebrities, people to kind of hang out? Because- no, and I,
1: w- I wasn't aware that he lived here until then, and I I made a post on social media about poking fun at myself, like I just did, and it turns out one of my teammates is knows him very well. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, I know him, and you know I have dinner with him and stuff. He lives here because at at least at the time he had a girlfriend here, and he's a well-to-do Hollywood guy, and in a lot of movies he can live wherever he wants, so.
0: So that I think that's a really good segue into sort of a last a last little story there. You you had sent me some information and I haven't had a check had I haven't had a chance to check it out yet. But you yourself have recently acted in a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: it's not not like to that level.
0: Yeah. Well, so. fair enough. But I mean, I've never acted in a movie, so it's interesting <laughs> to me to hear about. So can no. you tell me a little bit about uh, a little bit about that uh, for sort of our last yeah, sure. story? So I'm
1: uh, I'm the president of the Silent Warrior Foundation, which was founded by a buddy of mine who was a Marine Raider. Uh, it initially started out just as a, a way to give scholarships to Gold Star children of Marine Raiders, and we've since uh, opened that up to do more than just scholarships and and more than just Raiders, all the soft uh, guys and their families and direct support. So things like H bot uh, and uh, hyperbaric oxygen you know, therapy uh, and and things like that. Anyways, uh every year we have an annual thing that we do to raise money called Rescue more stories and what we do is we we tell the story of a famous rescue niche, usually one that somebody is pe- most people have read books about it or have seen movies, but we actually have the real people that were involved, so the people that were rescued and the rescuers and it's them telling the story the way it really happened, which often reveals all the stuff Hollywood left out or um so we were doing the uh, the Sante raid where the they tried to rescue the American prison, uh, prisoners in Vietnam in 1970. And I found out that there was a, uh, at the same time that, that year that we were doing it, there was a guy doing a documentary on the raid. So I reached out to him and we started comparing our research material. And then one thing led to another. And he said, hey, I wanna to come to your event. And we we're like, sure. So he came to the event and then we hosted this other thing on the anniversary of the raid, 50th anniversary. And he said, hey, would it be possible for you to pull some trains, have us recreate, we'll rebuild part of the camp, and we can can actually recreate some of these things. So one of my buddies, uh, the same guy that got my watch into the SEAL Team episode, Ian Brown, uh, tack shot on uh, Instagram, he's like, hey, I'll get all the uniforms and all the equipment from a prop house. And he did. He takes that stuff so seriously. So he set up like an issue facility, and we we ended up recreating components of the raid and had a professional film crew out there filming it. And, um, so at the last minute, I, I had no intention of like actually being in it or just facilitating it being done. And we ran out of guys to play roles. So we had the actual Raiders, uh, out there watching us film this. And one of them, Terry Buckler, we were like, Hey, we need a guy to play Terry Buckler. Terry and I had gotten kind of close during this process. We're about the same height and, and, uh, build for like how he was back in the day and stuff. And I was, and I was already half dressed that way. So pressing the stuff on and put a radio on my back and then a gal five and uh, me and a seventh group veteran, uh, Jay Osario. uh, He played, uh, he played uh, Dan Turner who was, who was the officer in charge of Terry on the raid. And I played Terry and we, we got to to do this thing.
0: Funny, That's awesome. And where can people uh, find this when it comes out? So I'm not sure what platform it's going to emerge on, but there's a website, 27
1: Minutes in sante and uh, they have a Instagram page as well. They'll be putting updates on there. And um, if you ping me on uh, anybody pings me on Instagram at uh, Dave Hall 1911 and wants to see some behind-the-scenes clips that Tracy shot, those are kind of fun because you can see sort of parts of how the movie magic happens. You know, with explosions and stuff. Uh, I'll, I wouldn't mind throwing some of that to uh draw some energy should be pretty soon coming
0: out. right on that's lots to look forward to extremely exciting so yeah dave thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing warrior yeah. stories I, I i don't know if we hit everything i think there's a couple of stories that we still want to get out there so i'm sure there'll be a, a another episode in the near future as well And i know people love these episodes but this is It's so fantastic to be able to hear this firsthand accounts from you and to be able to to get these stories out there and to share them with the watch world and with the audience as well. So I thank you so much for everything you've done. I thank you for your service. I thank you for coming on the show and and sharing these stories with us. Right on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And really quickly, uh, you mentioned your Instagram. Is that the best place for people to uh, engage with any of your content or chat with you? Yep. At Dave Hall 1911 right on and likewise for myself if anyone has any questions comments or feedback uh, feel free to shoot me an email at ricos at gmail.com additionally if you like to follow along with the show sort of an essential hub for communication you can uh, give me a follow over at uh, ricos watches podcast all one word on instagram uh just you know follow along with likes uh, or with uh, giveaways uh new episodes just my my watch content as it were that i put out there If you enjoy this episode in Audio Medium and any of the other episodes uh, that I put out and you'd like to see them in a video medium, head over to YouTube at Rico's Watches Podcast over there. Just make sure you like, subscribe, hit the bell icon, all that YouTube stuff because it helps the channel continue to grow. Dave, once again, thank you so much. It was incredible chatting with you and I look forward to having you again on the show soon to uh, share even more of your awesome SEAL stories. Right on. Thanks for having me. Look forward to meeting up with you and getting yours. Right on. You take care.